Shut up and sit down. everyone and welcome to the podcast tonight our topic is writing conflict and this is the c in gmc which stands for goals motivations and conflicts the um it's a building block for fiction writing um it is uh your building block for characterization and for your plot so we're going to talk about conflict um because i think a lot of times uh that's the stumbling block for a lot of people i think some people kind of intuitively work out their goals and their motivation, even if they can't specifically or don't specifically articulate them, like in their planning process or whatever. But sometimes conflict can be the a real stumbling block in terms of working out what it is and even identifying where it is in your story, if it's there at all. And there are two kinds of conflict, internal and external. Just like there are two kinds of motivations, external and internal. Internal comes from your character. External happens to your character i don't even um, i look over to the chat room and I, um, all i see is well that means superman striking off on the skyscraper was a kryptonite fr fog and i saw a frog first and i was like what the hell <laughs> well, it didn't get little, any better <laughs> the, the context for that's a little further up something about a weather map with arrows that let green sperm oh uh, okay 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 <laughs> It, it's complete non sequiturs. <laughs> it was just the first thing I saw. I was like, okay. <laughs> it, it threw me completely off. Um, but I often find it easy, um, easier to manage my external conflicts than I do my internal conflicts. I think, you know, and the thing is, I think for a lot of writers, for a lot of writers, I've observed that's true. Uh, but everybody has a, their own different flavor of struggling with writing conflict. Um, in that, like, sometimes you see somebody, like, set up an internal conflict for a character, which a lot, it's like, you know, what are they struggling with? Or or what are their insecurities? All, and all that stuff, insecurities, fears, the things that motivate them, like, especially for romance writers, right? Like, that fear of abandonment or fear of intimacy, that can be a pretty pretty both typical but also a good a good foundational building block of internal conflict because people really relate to it people relate to a character who's afraid of getting close to somebody they relate to characters who have a fear of intimacy they that's very relatable to people so it's a really good type of internal conflict to set up but what happens sometimes is like all of a sudden the the, the conflict is set up and then it's just gone it's just like where'd it go <laughs> it's just like, like it's Right. Yeah, it's like, I thought this character had a raging fear of intimacy. There's no fear of intimacy going on here. That's all intimate. It's all fluffy. It's all close. It's let's get married. It's like, I'm like, let's move in, have a joint checking account. It's like, <laughs> and joint checking accounts is that's, that's serious shit. That, that, if you, you, you do not have a fear of intimacy if you've got a joint checking account. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> so it, it's like that. And that's, I mean, maybe that seems like a, like a trivial example, but that's what you see a lot of times with the internal conflict in a character is it just is gone. It's like the author sets it up and then 
it vanishes like the wind and there's no explanation for how there's nothing that you can point to that explains how the person got over it or got past it or worked into it, you know, it just evaporates. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like a dew drop in the sun. (laughs) So shadow asks if character a is unsatisfied with his relationship and then he and his girlfriend have a fight. Is that internal or external or both? Um, it depends. I would say. I mean, I carry my different answer. But the ex, the the fight is it is obviously external conflict. That's something that's happening to your character. But if the dissatisfaction with the relationship didn't drive the fight, then it's not internal conflict. But so, if he's picking a fight because he's dissatisfied with the relationship. His internal motivations are causing an external conflict. Yes, but that's why context is important because if he didn't cause the fight and it could be now on the other hand, it could be that external thing is driving his internal because maybe she picked the fight. If she picked the fight, it could be driving his, his internal conflict, his lack of satisfaction with their relationship because she's constantly picking fights, external events influence internal motivation. So it, the context, context is everything. So in the case of conflict, like, Without specifics, it can be like, you know, all you're going to get is that it depends. <laughs> and one of the ways uh, that this can impact your writing is that uh, if your character is consistently, repeatedly responding to external conflict, they're in a position of um, defense instead of offense, um, which can impact your pace. It can impact your characterization. It can make your character look weak. Um, it can make your character, um, it can make your reader not connect well to your character. And you want to set your internal conflicts up in a way that your, your reader can relate to, but not in a way, like for instance, uh, like not for, you don't want to create a situation where your reader is deeply uncomfortable with your character, especially if they're your lead character. Yeah. Like, for instance, I, and Jilly also has expressed this in the past, I don't enjoy reading stories where the the main character has severe um, self-esteem issues Mm-mm. or body issues. It, it, it makes me deeply uncomfortable. Now, some readers seek that out, but I would say that audience is quite small. You look at, um, there are major themes that re- that some writers explore over and over and over again. Abuse recovery, um, daddy issues. <laughs> daddy issues. Daddy <sighs> issues. Permanent disability, which is, um, which is both external and internal. Because while a permanent, a permanent disability is obviously an external conflict that's happened to your, to your character, it can cause s- several issues with internal motivation and conflicts within your character cheating can cause a lot of internal which is an external motivator that can cause a lot of internal conflicts and you ever you ever read a story where you feel like the character is flip-flopping it's like well they got over this problem but now they have a problem with it again but then they get they they seem to progress and get over it but now they got a problem with it again and that is someone not being consistent about the characters because internal conflict internal goals internal motivation especially the internal stuff it's supposed to like move in the story it's supposed to progress and when a character makes progress that regression it's like if it doesn't seem like it's deliberate that they had a regression in that progress it just feels like the, that the that the characterization is all over the place um 
and I'm sure we, we've all read we've all read those stories, right? Where it's just like they're just all they, like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And yes, sometimes people do regress, but you can tell when the author is exploring that regression, right? Like, okay, we got past this, and here you are again because they call it out, right? Call it out. But when the character, it's like the it's like they're using internal conflict as a plot device. Like instead of being consistent to a characterization, they're using whichever mode is convenient for the scene. And that's just bad work. That's just bad character craft. And I think internal conflict and internal, especially the conflict side of it, drives that more than that inconsistency, more than even goals or motivation. Um, internal conflict can be a lot of things. It can be, it's, it's more than, it's easy to go to internal conflict being about insecurity or fear of intimacy, because those are very common themes people explore. But um, you think of it. Okay, in Duty of the Living, which I is my most recently posted story, um, Styles' internal conflict is he wants. I mean, he really wants. There's part of him that wants revenge, but he knows he has to be better than that. And so there's a there's a conflict there of he has to, you know a little bit by what does he think my his father would want what is actually the right thing to do what does he think the right thing to do is versus what he wants to do and and part of the arc of the story is him you know, asking the question am i am i doing am i really doing the right thing or am i satisfying my need to to get back at these people and that's why he asked derek you have to rein me in you have to rein me in and because I really just want to lash out. And that internal conflict is driving him a lot. It's it really contributes to his motivations and and why he's doing what he's doing. So um and so it was important for me that that progressed through the story and that you see his conflict and and see the moment where he is put in a position of like you could sit sit and and act in you know sit in judgment on these people who have hurt you hurt you and hurt your father and hurt your pack. And instead, he stepped back because he would never know if he had made the right decision. And that was part of kind of resolving that that arc for him without his internal conflict. So, But I think one of the things with internal conflict is it's very important to see a progression in the character and that they don't stay stagnant and that they don't regress on the things you've seen them move forward on. And I do think authors lose track of that sometimes. I mean, I, sometimes I think I do especially in my rough draft and I will find myself um, kind of like pulling at threads um, in my rough draft or in, but a lot of times I find it in my zero draft, which is my plot document. Um, and so, but yeah, I mean, it can be an issue for me. It can be a kind of a, a bump in the road or especially when I think I'm doing one thing, but I'm actually doing another. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I think I'm writing this, but as it turns out, I'm writing a big angsty daddy fest <laughs> instead. <laughs> so, but there's nothing that says you can't do both. <laughs> but I would say that when I set out to, when I did my zero draft for Unleash Your Demons, um, I was joking about team daddy issues, but it was more about where the characters were coming from. But it, there, but that, but that theme, it, it like, it is thread throughout the entire story, and that really wasn't my intent when I started. That exploration of paternal love, that wasn't where I was, that wasn't my intent when I started. But once it kind of, once you kind of got into that vision, though, you kind of, you went back and made it all consistent, and you... Yeah, I leaned into it. 
Yeah. Yeah. She did. <laughs> she kind of kind of collapsed into it. She's like, okay, fine. She's like, oh, it's it's like it was like a daddy issues bouncy castle. She was just gonna go all in. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I I Sunrider, I absolutely agree that that kind of character regression is exactly what you see on TV shows and even in serial movies like the MCU, where the characters seem to progress and then they seem to go back and then they seem to regret. And the thing is, when people do naturally in life do have regressions as they deal with their, their conflict and their own motivations. But the people around them usually acknowledge it, right? They're like, wow, you got better. Now you're worse. What the fuck? Uh, you know, and often these circumstances where you regress in reality, it usually requires a therapist. I yeah. mean, and, um, and honestly, psychological regressions can be very dangerous in reality. They're, they're nothing to play with. Um, you can go, um, you can go off a cliff that way. <laughs> I mean, metaphorically speaking. Um, and I used to joke, and I still do sometimes joke, the idea that, you know, that everybody I know is one one really bad experience away from a psycho um, psychosis. But it's accurate. I mean, we're most of humanity exists between one bad experience and another, and we are all fairly close to a psychotic break. That the human mind is very delicate it's a friend and so and so sometimes people write characters i don't think that when i see this kind of the kind of back and forth in the in the internal conflict with a character it is um i think i don't think it's deliberate in any fashion i think that it's convenient like i said convenient to the scene the scene needs this character to be neurotic about this even though they weren't neurotic about it three scenes ago so but the reader picks up on that, right? So it's not great character craft. And one of the things about a character's internal internal motivations, their you know, like Kara said, their conflict drives their motivations. Um, and sometimes their con their internal conflict and their motivations are in conflict, right? It's like you know they're supposed to be solving a problem, but they really just want to rain hellfire and brimstone down on you know somebody else, somebody. So. It, and it, if it's it, written, if it's, if, it, if it's written carefully, you can do both. Yeah. <laughs> so you just have to. But the thing is, just keep you have to just keep track of that. And it's not like it's. Uh, I think it's an overlooked part of the the planning process. Is is the is is the conflict that and how it feeds into the motivation because it, you know, what is going on with this character? Why don't they want to be in this relationship, or why do they want to be in a relationship? Or, you know, there's there's just so many different ways to approach getting a lock on what your character's motivations are, and if you understand what their what their conflicts are, it's pretty easy to figure out why they'd be motivated to do the things that they do. But if you don't know what is driving your character, you don't know their motivations, you don't know how they're going to respond to conflict until you're writing it, you've got a problem. I mean, and this is a problem whether you're a plotter or a pantser. You need to know your character going in. You need to know how they're going to respond and how their motivations will be shaped and changed by the events that, that, that happen to them. So that when you do come into a new scene, you know exactly how your character is going to act. And how those actions are going to impact them and the other characters you have in your story. And if you don't, it's going to fall apart on you. In a very obvious and ugly way. And then that will be, you know, one more work in progress that you've got that, that you never finish. And I'm not excluding myself from that example. At all. Um, yeah. 
I have, I mean, I said, I've sat down, I'm, I'm with Kira. I've sat down to work on projects and failed to really consider character motivation and character co internal conflict because I've got a character bio, right? But and not necessarily character bio that feeds into the story. And, and then all, all of a sudden I'll be sitting there scratching my head going, what am I doing? That's not going to work. <laughs> this seems kind of cocked up. And then you just kind of set it aside and go, I don't know. Um, okay, I'll figure it out later. Yeah, I got, exactly. I got 99 more problems just like you in my folder. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I mean, I had this problem with a story once where I was like working backward. Okay, if I want this to happen, then I have this happen. Then I have the character do this, and I have the character do this, and I have the character do this. And I go, okay, so the character's going to do this. And then I looked at it and go, and I looked at it, and I, when I sat down to write it, like that, I go. But why wouldn't the character just do the more direct thing, right? Why would they go through this convoluted path when they could just say no? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was a really contrived series of things to make this thing happen. When, when the more direct path would have just been step taking a step back, and the way I had written the character, that's exactly what they would have done, right? They would have just taken a step back from the situation. So, you know, I I had everything was just messed up, you know? So I was like, well, sometimes reverse engineering a problem gets you, gets you in a hot mess. I'm screwed. <laughs> so, you know, and you know, sometimes, uh, okay. Sunrider asks in the character, in that character profile in the beginning, do you lay out the internal conflict that you want them to be working out throughout the story? Um, I'm going to be honest that in my character profile, I am usually more concerned about their goals and motivations. Um, and I go back to my character profile after I've gotten all of my, um, after I've done my zero draft and I know where, um, my external conflicts are going to come into play. And then I map out my internal conflict and the responses my character might have to, to certain situations. And then I go back to my zero draft and add that information into my draft along with my, um, because my zero drive is basically plot events plus character reaction and motivation. So, but my plot events come first. And then I layer in. Sometimes when I'm doing my plot events, I know immediately how my character is going to respond, how they're going to act. But sometimes I don't. So I'll leave a little star there so I can come back to it later and review the whole document as a whole to figure out where my characters are going to be in those moments, how they're going to respond, how this is going to shape their motivations, how it's going to shape their internal conflicts, what their internal conflicts would be. Um, because those are, you know, your internal conflicts for your character should grow and change with them throughout the story. And it shouldn't just be like this one small humans are complicated, right? So your character should be just as complicated. And sometimes their conflicts will be even in conflict with each other, you know, and their, and their motivations will conflict with their goals. And, you know, so it's a balance to create a character and they're not always we're, we're going to do a podcast where we talk about what characters want and what characters need because what they want and what they need are often not the same thing just like with you like currently i would really enjoy a big old bowl of ice cream but i can't have it because the only ice cream in the house has sugar in it <laughs> that's what i want versus what i need i don't need ice cream 
Now, what Tony wanted coming into Unleash Your Demons is that he wanted to prevent Bruce Banner from becoming the Hulk. And he wanted Peter Parker to have a normal life and grow up never being Spider-Man. And he wanted to save the universe. And he wanted to give Nebula a sweet, exciting life on Earth where she never had to worry about anything ever again. And she never had to worry about Thanos ever finding her. Those were the, uh, those were his goals and motivations as um, um as he traveled into the past, but circumstances being what they were, those motivations had to change and grow with the conflicts that that he come you know that he came into contact with, and eventually in the um in the sequel he's going to have to come to the realization that no matter how much he would like it, he cannot protect Nebula from Thanos, not entirely. That he is a specter that that lingers in the background for both of them and he's coming he's coming to earth and they're both going to have to deal with him so they're going to have to deal with him there's going to have that's an external conflict that he cannot manage as much as he wants to there's a line in unleash your demons where tony thinks to himself that he would actually be more than willing to go into a bare knuckle fight with thanos to protect nebula that's how desperate he is to protect her, but it also highlights just how helpless he would be in that fight. <laughs> so, she changed her name. I know she should. She messaged me earlier and showed me an adorable <laughs> tangerine. <laughs> we won't sing to you tonight, no, maybe. It, it, not, not, not while we're recording anyway, because I don't need, <laughs> no, any, I don't no. need anybody holding that over my head forever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, internal conflict. I would say usually for me, internal conflict is, I would say, of the GMC goals, winds up being the harder one for me to kind of lo- get a lock on. Uh, I get there, but um, if I don't work out the internal conflict in my character profile, um, I always regret it. So, so what drives a character usually does jump out to me pretty quickly. So I do usually work that out early on. Um, and sometimes internal conflict is a huge element in the way I write my characters. And that, and that's a, that's a, authors have different, different levels at which they expose that kind of stuff as to how focused they're on the character and how much a character's, you know, internal conflict and, and how that feeds into the motivation and how much that drives the plot. Um, and for some, some authors, you some authors build from the top down and some build from the ground up. I tend to focus more on motivations um, and goals before conflict, which could be why conflict remains a problem for me. Or it could be just my response to the fact that conflict is a problem for me. <laughs> As I solve the problem, I solve the issues that are really easy for me to solve first and then go back to the hard stuff. But there's no right or wrong way to do it. As long as you do it, as long as you get there in the end, it's when you ignore it and never address it that it's a serious problem. And it will show up in your narrative. It will show up in the structure of your novel. Because if you don't have your character internal conflicts that nailed down, your external conflict isn't going to be any better. Is, is, is it, that's my experience in, in, in reading other writers. If they're dropping the ball on internal conflict, they're also dropping the ball on external conflict. Yeah. 
So if you don't have that worked out, what what's driving your character, they're not going to respond appropriately to the external conflict you throw at them in the story. Right. Um, and that's where it's kind of all over the place. Now, I talked to, I was talking to somebody one day who struggles with working with a, a character bio, and she says it's because she feels hampered, I think was the word she used. I wanted to say hamstrung, but that's, I don't think that was actually the word she used. I think she said hampered by the confines of what she's worked out for her character. Um, but isn't that a cop out? It felt like it. I mean, the thing is, if you can't, if you come up with it, if you come up with, because a lot of times not working out these things in the character bio leads to the lack of internal consistencies in the story, right? Well, yes, mm -hmm. but just, we don't, we don't need to model their bad behaviors in TV shows. Um, <laughs> just because they do it doesn't mean we should. That's if right. If your friend jumped off a cliff, would you follow? <laughs> okay, mom. I mean, that is such a mom line. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Well, I, I I always respond. Well, it would depend. Is is my friend running from something worse than jumping off a cliff? I don't know. <laughs> is the cliff over water? I mean, or is it rocks down there? I, I need I, I need more information. Is it a very high cliff? <laughs> <laughs> is it a high cliff? Is there water? Are are terrible uh, terrible vicious T Rexes <laughs> chasing us off this cliff? I need I need some context. Which would get me in more trouble than I was already in. <laughs> All the context. <laughs> but if you work out, if you say, look, it, and the thing is, if you know what kind of character you want to write and you know what's going on with them and you know, and you have that, and you go, okay, when you're working through your plot, you go, okay, then this event's going to happen. It helps avoid a plot hole because you can create plot holes in your own story because you've established that if you've established that your character is has this motivation that they're driven for, to for justice that they're driven to um you know so let's say you've got a spider-man type motivation right he's going to protect people right great power great responsibility friendly neighborhood kind of guy and you've got that characterization on like lock right and then he witnesses a murder but decides to let the guy get away with it because he's somebody he's known. That's very inconsistent with that particular characterization of the superhero, of the superheroes who would let somebody walk away from a murder just because they knew them. I mean, Spider-Man's at the bottom of the list. And so, you yeah, I mean, you know, that motivation would be more at home in, in, um, in Captain America's pocket. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, you have to just, it's just something that you need to like consider that you can actually create something that feels to a reader like a plot hole because the character is so wildly out of character. And if you don't look at your characterization, okay, so when this event happens, this character I have established, how are they going to react to it? And, and consider that, then you could wind up with what feels like a lack of consistency in your story. But you can also end up getting that dreaded out of character. Yeah. And it doesn't um, matter if it's an original character or not, because when you've established characterization and then you break it, the whole of the internet's huffing at you. The whole internet and their friends. All their friends are huffing at you too. It's just terrible. Um, but, you know, particularly in fan fiction, this is when you see um, when, when you're reading a, a story where the characterization is so, is so off that you actually want a warning for bashing of the main character. Like there are plenty of stories in NCIS that really should be labeled Tony bashing. Yeah, and they're supposed to be Tony positive, right? They're Tony centric, Tony positive, and you read it and you're like, oh, 
holy crap, Tony's being bashed because Tony's for whatever being reason, a dumbass. Either because he threw a stapler across the bullpen or because he's, you know, he's having some other form of tantrum or, you know, just whatever, just whatever it is. Crying rivers of tears in the, in the bullpen. He's reacting inappropriately um, within the scope of his job, within the scope of his personality on the show. Um, He's telling Secnav about his terrible childhood, you know, whatever. You know, and just... These kinds of missteps can can really create a situation where your character is extremely out of character. Um, but it's more about the consistency in your story. Because if you build your consistency in a good way in your story, you can take your character in a vastly different direction from canon. And it doesn't feel like you're out of character. Like, Lady Holder, she had Tony salt and burn, you know, everything. What, what's that story called? Earthquakes or something like that? Yes, but Salt she built a motive. But he, 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 she built in the motivation for why he went. He went scorched earth on everything and everyone. Earth, yeah, it's called earthquakes. Um, and when you build in that motivation, it's like you can see it. You can see Tony going, and but you know, and, I don't see, I don't see any motivation that has him throwing staplers in the bullpen. No, but there wasn't a single moment in earthquakes where I thought, oh, he's out of character. Not one. I mean, it's an, it's an EAD, so we haven't got the whole thing. But, like, the moment it was there, it was like, okay, yes, that makes... Okay, get it. But then back of my mind, I'm also thinking, I wonder who she's going to ship him with. Because <laughs> 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 I'm that bitch. <laughs> she don't know yet. I think I already asked that question once before. But it does stick out. It's like, because he's such a badass, right? So he deserves a badass. He deserves a in-your-face badass. Because he was, like, in everybody's face being a badass. Like, he had people, really, really powerful people, shit in their pants. So, and he wasn't even a sentinel. <laughs> so you can take your character and have them do something that in their canon circumstances might seem out of character if you give the foundation for why they're behaving that way. But, you know... Actually, I think the thing I see Tony doing the most out of character is in is the way he overshares in a lot of stories. Like, just, I mean, we all have been to lunch or dinner with that person who is telling, you know, you've met just met them. And they're telling you all this stuff. All this stuff. Like, and you're sitting there going, how quickly can I get out of this, right? And when you see someone like Tony doing that with somebody, you know, up the food chain, like SecNav or Secretary of Defense and talking about his childhood and the way he grew up, and you're just kind of going, no, dude, don't do that. <laughs> why? Why are you doing this? Why? why are you Why are you oversharing in a completely inappropriate, get a therapist, dude, get a therapist. And there's really not, I mean, if, if the author, if the author was giving us some kind of foundation for why he's doing that, then maybe you could like ride with it. But if there's no foundation and that usually there isn't, it's like, it's just some, you know, divergence from canon where all of a sudden he's deciding to either share everything or. For me, for me, you know, for me, when it comes to NCIS, uh, the, the, the quickest way to throw me out of your story and to actually make me close it is to have Tony burst into tears. Yes, it is perfectly okay for a man to cry. I think it would actually be unrealistic for a man to never cry. It, it Everybody cries, okay? It happens. But when you have stories where Tony is sobbing in the bullpen like a child, I don't buy it. 
Because honestly, it's, if he was it, that it, emotionally it doesn't hinged, doesn't fit his character. No, and not, and not just his character, but if he was that emotionally hinged, he wouldn't. They wouldn't let him keep his gun. I mean, it's my experience with men that when they're that upset, when they cry, they seek a bolt hole. <laughs> They're going to dig in somewhere where nobody else can pay attention or watch them. Oh, I do that. So, you know. Yeah, I do too. I don't, I don't, I don't like to cry in public. I'm not going to cry. In the, I'm not going to sit in the middle of the bullpen and cry. Yeah, exactly. Hers is he drugged. Um, but it, it just, you got to give some kind of found. I mean, I've, I've had Tony, I mean, I've gotten some grief from people because I'm very anti Tony crying because he's a designated crier in the NCIS fandom. And, um, I know I've made my position on that clear, and yet because, and partially because I have Tony crying in several of my stories, right? But a, I feel like I earn it, <laughs> and b, it's not in the middle of the bullpen. Just randomly. he's not or, having some crying temper tantrum fit in the middle of the bullpen, and there is a difference between someone having a moment of sincere grief and an adult throwing a toddler tantrum in in the middle of their workplace, crying on Secnav. You know, that just doesn't work. Yeah, only Gibbs gets to do that. Yeah. Um, and so, and partially you have to work out what, and th this speaks to internal conflict. I mean, because if you're going to write a very emotional Tony, you got to work out why he would be that emotional. And also from a, from a point of consistency for your whole narrative arc is how he got to be where he is being that emo. So I just don't see him surviving as a cop in Philadelphia if he's prone to I mean, that's just reality. I'm not trying to demonize emotionalism, but really? A street cop, a beat cop in Philly cries all the time? I just don't see it. He cries on Eli. <laughs> Only when Queenie's around. Sigh. Sigh. <laughs> Can't even actually do the sigh part. I'm just going to say it. But, yeah, I mean... And Anytime you have your character acting in a way that's extreme, you've got to look at the you've got to look at the why. What is it about their internal conflict, their internal struggle? If you don't like the word conflict, try the word struggle. Um, if you don't, if you don't understand what their internal, what about them internally is making them act that way? And if you can't work that out, then it doesn't make sense for them to act that way. Because all of this stuff speaks to their internal, especially somebody who's a federal agent who's been carrying a gun for 10 to 20 years, is what, what would cause them to break down would have to speak to their internal struggle. And you got you to do, do something with that. And if it's just canon circumstances, you fail the suspension of disbelief test because canon circumstances didn't do that to them in canon. It's crazy. Now, one of the things I think... Um, one of the things I think that when it comes to conflict, be it internal or external, one of the things you might notice the most about conflict is when it's not there. Everything is sunshine and roses. And There's no conflict, internal or external. Um, and that can be a jarring lack in a story. It doesn't mean that you need a villain to overcome. But... Sometimes conflict, external conflict is circumstances. Sometimes external conflict is the weather. Um, you know, it's whatever is putting obstacles in your character's path. And when there are no obstacles, your character isn't moving. And when, and when there's no internal struggle, your character has nothing to, to drive them, nothing to feed their motivation. So lack of conflict can be one of the biggest problems for writers in writing conflict is it's just not there because they don't they don't put it in 
Um, and there's not, I don't know, there's nothing wrong with a happily ever after, you know, short story where, you know, meet, fuck, there's no problem. They, they fall in love, love at first sight. You know, what'd you say? Meet, greet, fuck, happily ever after. Yeah. If that, in a, in a short story, you could have a conflict, relatively conflict free. Um, fuck fest. Fuck fest. Right. And you don't have to delve into that too much, but I would say, even if they're, even if you're not writing in any external conflict, cause you've got a short story, and I make that qualifier because I don't see how you can do a novel without having some kind of external conflict. There's got to be something in their path, right? Something. Which is why these, why there's certain tropes are very popular in, in romance novels. The stalker, the, um, the bitter ex-girlfriend, um, uh, his job is too dangerous. The evil plotting mobster ex-husband. <laughs> the disapproving mother-in-law, father-in-law. <laughs> Yeah, he's a werewolf. Werewolf. (laughs) What the fuck? He's a vampire. Just trivial things. Just this thing you you just gotta overcome. I got an interesting comment on Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond today. It it was really interesting because um, it was something that I was thinking about when I was replotting that monstrosity from when I found it. Because it was an old work that I I reworked. Um, I wrote that when I was much younger and I had to go back and basically rewrite it. Uh, but anyways, um, one of the things that she's, one of the person, this, this this person has been reading through my Harry Potter fic. It's really interesting when I have a new reader, they go through all through my stuff. I can even tell how fast they're reading based on their comments. Um, and she said that one of the things that she was reading, um, she's about halfway through. She's at the, she's at the duel with, um, with Victor and Harry and she said one of the things that worried her when she first started the series was that she was worried that it would be kind of boring because Voldemort had already been taken care of and when you look at Harry Potter fiction most often than not if you're doing a, if you're, if you're doing an, a story during this time period for Harry one of his biggest obstacles one of his biggest external conflicts is Voldemort so if you take him out of the picture like I did in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond what's left so I mean, you know, it's a legitimate concern for a a, a reader going in because they don't know what they're going to get as far as conflict is concerned. I think I did a really good job with conflict in um, Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, but I did have to work for it. I actually demonized a character that I don't necessarily think is a terrible one in canon. I don't think Victor Crumb is really a problem in canon, but I needed I needed that element, and and he filled the role. I can see that. So and that's the same thing with Sam Carter in Ties That Bind. I'm not a Sam Carter basher by nature. You probably have noticed that. I think she's problematic and she has a couple of issues in canon and she's definitely a Mary Sue. And I don't care if you don't think a canon character can be a Mary Sue. I don't agree with you. Don't send me any emails. Um, but I don't necessarily have a problem with Sam Carter in canon. Um, but uh, I needed an ex-wife character that that could have the position that I created for this ex-wife. And in no single way did I think Jennifer Keller could play that part. There were actually only three women that I felt like could have done it. Um, been in, you know, that position. And Sam Carter was, um, um, was my choice. Um, the other one was Elizabeth Weir, which I did not want to go that way. Um, Cause I had plans for her. And the third was Janet. No, you wouldn't do that to I, Janet. I'm not. But she was one of the ones. She's strong enough, but I just think she's not a character that you could turn that way and have it be 
believable. But of the canon characters in those circumstances, those were the only ones that I could see being married to Rodney and having a really negative, bad relationship with. Yeah. Now, if I had chosen Janet, it wouldn't have been the same kind of bad relationship. Because yeah. um, Sam, so, Sam has a different kind of... She can be very apathetic and borderline depraved. Single-minded. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So when I chose Carter, it shaped what kind of marriage she had with McKay. If I had chosen Weir, it would have been a very different marriage, but it would still been a situation that he would have wanted out of. If I, if I had chosen Janet, it would have been a deeply unfulfilling relationship that probably would have left them both a little broken. Yeah. Um, but in the end, I chose Sam Carter, not because I hate her, but just because she was convenient. Served your plot, which is sometimes sometimes you make the decision about what what serves your plot, and Sam served your plot better than Janet did. Well, Janet is a dom in ties that bind, so obviously, if 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 Janet and Brad are together, and they definitely fucking should be, then then he's a sub. That's the way that goes. <laughs> um, so there's something mentioned up further up in the in the chat room um, about. Um, Tony's characterization coming up potentially, and they were talking specifically about their characterization, potentially being Mary Sue-ish um, because of dealing with, you know, resolving some of the, the canon stupidity. Um, but uh, so I, I want to kind of speak, I'll also kind of speak a little bit to how I, I, I work on that. A lot of, because I, I can, I could easily go Mary Sue-ish with Tony and I, and I don't think I do. Um, although some people have like would challenge me on that, please don't. You know, I, I don't need that discussion in my life right now. Um, I know that I tend to skew my characters a little bit, a little bit super, a little bit too powerful, a little bit too, a little bit extra. That's that's my preference, and I own it. Um, but um, when I look at Tony's internal conflict, there's there is like some some there. I always write him one of. The, with some like neurotic elements. Cause I have to look at why does he, why is he there for as long as he's there? However long he's there, what has driven him through his, his life through his career changes. And there's some, some dysfunction there that, that is stems from his childhood that has him making not great decisions sometimes and holding on to things that um, are not good for him because of those that because of that internal struggle that he's got about feeling neglected and abandoned and not wanted which seems like a good and canon interpretation for him based upon what we know uh and a little bit too attached to his the 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 personality he developed in college because that's probably where he finally felt like he came into his own and was not so alone in life was in college so I work that into how I have him and own that he makes bad decisions. And like every time I have a, like a, a conflict that he goes through, one of the things he owns in, in all of those is that he makes, he's partially responsible for things that go bad. I've ne I don't think I've ever written a conflict. And if you guys correct me, if I'm wrong, guys, if I'm forgetting something where he full on doesn't take any responsibility for the way things have gone on the team. I don't think I've ever done that because it's, it's my head canon that it's, you know, this happened to him, but also he allowed it to happen and he let things continue to become unhealthy. Um, there's a s sort of a quiet line in um, one of the stories. It's, it's like uh, literally it's like one line where he says something like that. He was so busy 
um, holding on to what he had that he couldn't try to get something better. And I think that fear of losing what you have does is a very real struggle for people. It is a very real fear that drives their motivation. It's like, well, I've got this thing that's not very functional, but is, isn't this better than nothing? And that drives people to staying in all kinds of unhealthy relationships. It drives them to staying into jobs that they're like not I'd happy rather be in. miserable than alone. Yeah. I'd rather, or not. Yeah. Or, you know, I don't have anything else in my life or I've, you know, I think that they're, especially if I'm writing something that's later series with him, that it's like by the time that he's put so much into, into the team and into that job that, he doesn't have anything else, you know, he's given so much to Gibbs demands that he doesn't, he's not close to his friends anymore. He's alienated them. So, or they're just not close. And so it's like, this is what I've got. And I'm, I've put so much into this. I just have to keep, I have to keep making it work because this is all I've got. And it's hard for me, as long as I keep that in mind, that that's kind of where he's at, like as a later series, as opposed to some, when he leaves earlier in the series. Um, there's a, um, but there's a, there's a, there's a dynamic with Tony and Gibbs that is, um, the, the enmeshment is really unhealthy, obviously. It is um, very unhealthy. And you see that, that dynamic play out a lot in um, different relationships. Um, Tony is actually, um, I think that he's missed Early on, he mistook um, Gibbs's controlling nature for some paternal affection, um, <clears throat> in canon at least, and mm-hmm. it it created a situation where Tony was never able to make his own father proud of him. He never had a moment where Senior um, embraced him as a son, and then here is Gibbs, who's domineering and controlling. Um, and, it's, uh, and at some point in Tony's mind, that started to look that started to look like paternal affection, or just affection. It started to look like affection, and Tony had never really gotten that from another man. Um, and you can take that for what you want. You can make it sexual, or you can make it paternal. To me, it looks often maternal, um, paternal. <laughs> um, team daddy issues, you know. Yeah, there's a line in Ties That Bind where John is talking about Ford. Um, and f- he made a mistake with Ford and um, Ford um, has some issues. And he says that Ford mistook his dominance and care for affection because John topped him. He was just looking for sex, but Ford couldn't separate the two because he has some emotional issues. And so that's, I see that. Actually, that dynamic playing out a lot in really unhealthy relationships. Um, no, no, and it's not a common thing in healthy BDSM relationships, whether they're new or not. Um, Ford is emotionally damaged. Uh, that wasn't what Rodney was talking about. I don't know if that has context with this conversation. Let me think about that. Um, but for for Tony, I, I honestly think that he he started to view all of Gibbs's behaviors as positive things, as a form, as a mental. It's an ugly mental leap, but it's kind of like he was that everything Gibbs does is about how much he cares. Does that make sense? 
Well, they 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 basically say that in canon. He acts like that because he cares. I mean, that's said in multiple episodes, you know, and and it's presented as as being. And so I think, for, like for me, when I keep that kind of stuff in mind, that this character is kind of messed up emotionally, right? He's he's um, not not dysfunctionally messed up, but there's there's neurotic behaviors driving him very neurotic right he's got he's got these daddy issues that are pushing him and he's got this you know need to hold on to the team as his family because he doesn't have anything else and his so, woman left him at the altar right so when i am so it keeps even if he is like the best investigator or you know there's all these other elements that seem like he's so extra right it, it keeps i think it keeps him in check when i keep that carefully balanced with this internal struggle he has and um and that's why usually you know there's i'm in putting in a catalyst or if i want him to have had been like if i'm doing a departure earlier on if i want him to have had a a more functional um want him to be healthier emotionally i insert a better emotional support outside of work and, you know, but that's something I would do if he's leaving earlier on in the series where he gets fed up of, with Gibbs earlier on is he's got friends and family outside of work and he just doesn't need to put up with this shit. Um, but when that, when it's, we're talking later, like season, you know, seven, eight, nine, I'm looking more at somebody who's come into his life later, who's making an impact and kind of becoming a catalyst for, for him. Um, and sometimes I just think that, that the offense is so egregious, it just snaps him out of this enmeshment he has with Gibbs. But it's, it's, I do look very carefully at what is the catalyst for change for him? Because I do think that a lot of his internal conflict drives him as a character, that internal struggle that he has. Um, for good and bad. Yeah. Now, I'm not personally, this could be a bigger issue, a much bigger issue for somebody who's interested in writing a Tony on the team, like a team fic. I'm not interested in writing Tony that stays on the team. It doesn't interest me in the slightest. So it, it's less of a conflict for me as a writer because either I'm going to put him in a new team at NCIS or he's going to take over the MCRT and Gibbs is going to go teach Sniper or whatever. But I'm not interested in preserving and fixing that unhealthy dynamic. So especially not with ziva in play because Hell her no. her characterization is so <laughs> i can't deal with it i i cannot accept that someone who's guilty of espionage could get american citizenship and get a job at a federal agency it is beyond my ability to suspend disbelief yeah way beyond in a matter of months yeah so i mean i just i I'm, i went through all that because i want to talk to I, my my little sorry for my little tongue tied there but the i'm contagious yeah <laughs> when it it's important if you're feeling like your character's edging to to mary sue territory look at look at what's going on with them internally look at what's going on what, what kind of conflicts do they have if you haven't built in anything um <laughs> if you haven't built in any kind of internal conflict for your character that could be why they might be lending, you know, leaning a little bit Mary Sue-ish um, because they're not making any decisions. You know, they're not making any questionable decisions from a place of just like in, if found like a big catalyst, I me, mean, Tony was not at a point. He was not at an unhealthy, at the unhealthy point. It was getting there, but he wasn't at the unhealthy point 
in, in terms of where he was in canon. And his relationship with Gibbs was a little bit different. Um, but there's his family is a big catalyst, right? All of a sudden, he's got this ready-made family. Well, because of you know his internal conflicts and the way things are for him internally, his own internal struggle, he's not going to just leap on that. And if he had, it would have seemed out of character, right? If he would have just been all in on that and I'm going to quit NCIS and I'm going to go into the family business, it would have seemed weird because he needed to get there in his own time. And part of that was resolving his own internal struggle about weird or deeply pitiful. Yes. Like just a utter leap of faith in that, in that single moment. Where he just buys it wholesale and doesn't ask any questions. That's pitiful. It speaks to a deep, deep emotional problem. Yeah. Deeper than he already had. So when you're when you're giving your character, you know, these these events that are life-changing, you have to look at like based upon their internal struggle their internal what 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 drives them like the core of them what is the core of that character what motivates them and when you look at that and conflict is a huge part of this the internal conflict is how would they react to this thing you've given them right this this event that you're bringing into their life and it may be that it's going to take you an extra 10,000 words for you to get them realistically to where you want them to be because maybe they're not all on board with being beamed up to space and going off with aliens. Maybe it's going to take them a minute to accept that kind of offer or to be okay with, you know, a situation. And you just have to, and sometimes the character's like, I'm all in, take me. <laughs> I mean, in the second part of Lantean Legacy, Jeannie um, has to deal with those very circumstances where um, her brother has returned to Earth. Um, she's been... Um, they now know, that, you know what happened to the Lance expedition. There was you know, serious consequences to what happened. Um, now her children are at risk because people want to control her brother and they see her as a avenue by which they can control him. Um, none of John's brothers are particularly happy with him and what, and what has happened. Um, and, now, and now because of the threat, these threats, they, they've all been uprooted. And Jeannie didn't want to go. But she doesn't have a choice if she wants her children to be safe. And so it's like, and she has to have that moment where she realizes that even her own ex-husband is a threat to her children because of what her brother has gone through in, um, in Pegasus. And so it would have been really weird if I said, oh, well, you know, she, if she'd have opened the door and turned around and started pecking her shit to go to Atlantis, that would have been weird. It would have made no sense. Why would a mother of two just decide she wants to go to Atlantis? It wouldn't have. It made no sense at all. So I had to build it. I had to build it in. Um, you, have to, you have to work for it. You have to get your character there. And realistically, she's going to struggle some. Probably more than her kids will. Her kids will have some moments. But she's going to have these moments when probably the resentment overwhelms her. Which is also why by the end of that book, she actually has a better connection with David Shepard than she does her own brother. Because he's in the same boat with her. His life has been uprooted. The career he busted his ass for is gone. You don't get to be a Navy SEAL for working for a week. He busted, he busted his ass for years to get where he was. And now it's all gone. And now he's adjusting to an alien city in another galaxy. Um, 
And when book three opens, he is um, um, he's leading a team and he feels like he hasn't earned the respect that he's got because he's only he, he feels like he's only got it because he's John's brother and he's still trying to earn it for himself. Um, and he's made this family with Jeannie and um, Max, the baby, calls him daddy. And he's he's like 100 percent on board with all that. So he's gotten this beautiful thing out of what happened. He's gotten a family. He's got, you know a woman and two children and, and, and Max and Madison are all in on the whole daddy front. And he's got all this, but in the back of his mind, he's also thinking they don't respect me for me. They look up to me because I'm John's brother. Every respect, I mean, every bit of respect I've got on this city comes from John's dude, you know, John's actions. And so he's, you know, he's, he's still feeling his way around, you know? I mean, and I, and that's completely understandable that he would be struggling that way and probably feeling sometimes a little bit like an imposter, you know, it's like, right. And you have, and you have, and characters have moments where they just kind of go, okay. Cause you accept, cause it, you know, David and Jeannie both are like, okay, we're going to put one foot in front of the other. We're going to solve the problem in front of us. We're going to, we're going to make the best of this. But at times that's going to back up on you. And you're like, I just want my life back. And I can't have it. And that's something that your character has to go through. They have to grieve for that. Um, and if they don't, it comes off as disingenuous. Um, somebody mentioned, oh, Shadow mentioned above, that when we were talking about the example of, like, Tony latching onto his family super fast and just being all okay with it. And, oh, yay, family. It would be just, like, either really worrying or very pitiful. Harry Potter is a perfect example of that. The way he latched onto Sirius Black, having not knowing him at all set, spoke volumes about his internal his own internal conflict his struggle and ha- and and what what was he, he would was rather of. live with a man he just met that had spent 10 years 12 years 12 years in Azkaban um rather than go back to that house with Vernon and Petunia and Dudley told you everything you ever needed to know about his home circumstances and so whether you mean to or not, you reveal a lot about your character's internal conflict when you expose them to external conflict. Um, I read a, I started reading, I'm not sure if I actually finished it or not, a story where Harry is so overwrought by his circumstances um, that by the time the, thir- the on the first task runs comes around and he's about to face the dragon, He's decided he's not going to fight. He's just going to go out there and let that dragon kill him. And the dragon is like, I don't think so, human boy. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on with you? (laughs) And I believe that's actually the, um, the queen that fell to earth by Bob Min. And I'm not sure if I've ever finished it or not, so I can't tell you um, what the circumstances were um, beyond that, but um, she, the Queen of Fell of Earth, she's this is a Pern crossover, so the dragon that Harry ends up facing is actually, I think, a dragon from Pern. Um, and um, but and honestly, when I read the summary of that, it, it didn't seem remotely out of character to me. I'm honestly surprised. There are there are moments in 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 canon where I'm thinking to myself, you know what, kid, I don't know why you just didn't give up. Well, based upon what they, that premise, you know, we, we talked about this one night, that premise they introduced us to in Fantastic Beasts. Um, it's like, why isn't Harry Potter that thing? What is that thing? What is it called? Um, I, um, I know what you mean. Like, um, an obscurus. 
Obscurus. It's like, why isn't Harry Potter an Obscurus? He, sh he should have been. Obscurial? Yeah, why Obscurial. didn't he? Why, why wasn't he like that? Well, obviously the answer is because J.K. Rowling hadn't actually thought of it. And if she had, she wouldn't have made his circumstances so desperate. Right, because he met the profile, right? You read, you read what what caused it, and you went, "Bless me, that reads just like Harry Potter." <laughs> Why wasn't Harry Potter an obscurial? It should have been. Um, but you could say that Lily's protection, that the magic that he still carried from her sacrifice, protected him from that. Or it could be the Horcrux or the pseudo Horcrux that he's carrying, um, prevented that. Uh, Sunrider, I just double birded the screen. So apparently, Rowling's loophole was that only children who know about their magic can be obscural, uh, an obscurial. <laughs> That's like saying you can only get the flu if you know about the flu. Well, she's, she, you know, she she does have this habit of like people people put, point out the holes and she plugs them in bizarre ways. So we'll just we'll just kind of go, yeah, whatever, baby. <laughs> okay, Joanne. Okay, whatever. You you gave us the fuel for 10 million fanfics, so we're going to let this one pass. <laughs> but, you know, when I read the description of an obscurial, because I, I haven't read Fantastic Beasts, I actually don't have any interest in reading it. No, but I was or watching I was, the movies. Um, no. But I... Um, there's some stuff, Fantastic Beasts, parts of it parallel the timeline for Leo Moto. So I was looking into some of the events that happen in Fantastic Beasts and looking into how they might might affect or potentially interact or which ones. Because like, I prefer to know what what events I'm hand-waving away than to not know. So, right. And that's when, I, that's when I first read about the Obscurial and I went, that sounds exactly like what Harry Potter should have been. So why wasn't Harry Potter an Obscurial? Obviously, it didn't exist yet. <laughs> um, anyway, so when it comes, we've talked to quite a bit about internal conflict is like super, super important to your how your story moves and do your characters feel authentic. And um, um, I'm working up the internal GMC stuff, I think is is a lot what helps characters resonate is real because even if you, the point is not to spell it out the point is to know it so that your characters react appropriately to the circumstances you put them in and the readers just they just get it you know your that work shows through in how your character moves through your story you don't have to spell all that stuff out some of it you may need to but you may mention a point here or there but the point of of doing it and there is there is an inclination for some writers it's like if they've done some work they're going to let you know <laughs> look all the fucking work i did but it's like if they you did really if you really done the work you don't need to tell anybody you don't have to say it right so when you get into, you know, when you read a story where the author is like, you, you could tell they've researched um, how how a jet how a jet plane is built, right? Because it's in there, it's in there. It's like they want you to know. So there's you don't need to like spell that kind of stuff out. Um, so if anybody has any questions about internal conflict, drop them in the ask a question so we don't miss them. Um, yeah. Yeah, Tandry, that's a really good example of internal conflict progression and, and that there's more than often more than one thing. You know, people have more than one. We're not we're not static flat. We don't just get one internal conflict. Some of us are very conflicted about everything. We have conflict all over the place. Um, but yeah, I do think John I do think John's um John Shepard's internal conflict in what might have been it's never 
you know, she never says this is my internal conflict, but it is very clear as he's progressing through the story, how he's working through those issues, you know, in, in the various episodes, his progression through these things that he struggles with and how they have motivated him into the actions he's taken in the past. And even sometimes, because sometimes those things lead us to make health choices that are less than healthy. And that's part of making your character realistic is that they have to go back and fix that stuff. They have to make better choices the next time. They have to own those mistakes. Um, but if anybody has questions, like I said, if questions about internal motivation, drop them in the ask a question. And should we move on to external conflict? Not motivation, yeah. conflict. External conflict, I think, for a lot of people, leads you down that and then path. It's like, you ever read a story where there's like four or five different climaxes and you keep waiting for the end, but the end never happens? I'm looking at you, um, Return of the King. Um, <laughs> I was about to first like thought that's a story, story that never ends. Endings. <laughs> like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> And then, 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 and then. So what that is, is that the author builds in multiple external conflicts. And then like they get to the end of their story and they haven't resolved any of them. So they have to resolve them all at the same time or one after another. Well, what happens is one after the other, and that's that's the problem because then it it just starts they start to fall flat. You're falling at you don't want you know your falling action to be major conflict resolution. That's not the way that goes. The falling action is supposed to be the moment where your where your reader and your character can relax and go, okay, okay, okay. Someone give me a drink. <laughs> he, yeah, but he baked in. I mean, you got to me. You got the big con. You got the big climax, right? Which should be like wrapping up most of your external conflict. But he hadn't, and so your falling action, the falling action, the return of the king, had a lot of external conflict resolution, and it's just like that's why it felt like it was ending over and over and over again. But it all, everything but that to me, but like the first big ending fell flat because it's like, well. It's sort of like, I already came. Could you quit touching me? <laughs> right? I'm done. I've been done for about 10 minutes. I. <laughs> how much longer do we have to. Get how much longer do we have to bed. cuddle? <laughs> get on your side of the bed right now. It reminds me of this, um, this, this little comic strip I saw on Facebook today where it shows this girl's face. And above it, it says, I wonder when death will come. And she looks so bored. And then it. It goes to the next frame and she's looking more bored. And then it goes to the third frame and she's actually having sex with death. And he tells her it... <laughs> any minute now. <laughs> it would be better if you helped <laughs> or something like that. Get it. Like, hold on, put it in the chat room. It was hilarious. I have not seen this comic. But um, I only. I don't ever see anything with the very top post on Facebook. So when I go into Facebook, if it's not the top <laughs> post, I don't see it. It's very funny. But um, you uh, you know, if if I had my preferences as far as ending goes with the Return of the King, it would have ended with the crowning. He calls her Becky. Ah, it's perfect. You know, you could help out a little bit, Becky. <laughs> <laughs> she looks so bored. You know, and frankly, if you're a fucking the Grim Reaper, <laughs> I don't think you have any room to be bored. Nice wordplay, Ellie. Ellie says at least he has a boner. 
<sighs> it makes me want to write a series about a bunch of guys who are actually like that. That's their job. They're actually reapers. I think I just bunnied myself. There are some reaper stories out there. It's it's it. it I think it could be very entertaining. So, external conflict. Um, anything beyond a very short story, you need external conflict. And by short story, I mean like you don't need a plot level short. Like you're writing. But once you've hit the level of a proper short story, which is what about ten, twelve thousand words or so, you yeah. need you need some kind of external conflict. Otherwise, you're just you know, because there's you, just you, so much meet, greet, and fuck you can do. Yeah, meet, greet, fuck. If that's taking you ten, twelve thousand words, you need to you need to dial something down. Um, but you got to, you know, once you get beyond a certain length, you've got to start putting in some kind of external conflict. And that does not mean conflict. People take conflict often. So there's my precious. Um, when you um. It conflict people can take it so literally, like it means there has to be a fight or an obs, you know. But it could just literally be we talked about earlier. It could be any obstacle that is in your character's path that influences them and affects their motivation, that drives them forward. It could be the weather. It could be getting a bad review at work. It could be, um, you know, it could be it could be tripping and and breaking a toe. That is that is an external event, even though it happened to them. It isn't because that all external events are things that happen to them and affect them. So, you know, and maybe that they, they miss their date, right? So they miss their date. And because they miss their date with their boyfriend um, who they're not sure they even like, they meet the guy across the hall, whatever. I mean, you just got to start baking in stuff that happens to the character. Once you get to a certain length, like the external motivator in, um, fall for you is actually, uh, his previous relationship. Um, creepy werewolf guy turned stalker um which you know honestly for a gay romance I, most of the time the external romance the external one of the biggest external conflicts is like homophobia or dealing with people in their family who don't, who don't approve of their relationship or whatever and i just didn't want to write that <laughs> so i was like what can i write instead you know so but uh because that's when we, what, what you described when you've the family thing is where your internal and your external conflict have a direct tie. Family is an, this external conflict that's happening, but it creates the internal conflict. They're directly connected. And, and sometimes those are the easiest conflict models to work with is where there's a direct connection between the internal and the external conflict with a character. Um, in like that type of thing, as opposed to having to, work up something else but like if you know the external conflict could be something that is way distantly removed like um a natural disaster uh you know unexpected your character is in you know if you're dealing with somebody in washington dc they could be very easily affected by a hurricane or you know so there's unexpected versus kind of like the chronic long-term external conflict and so it's it's different but you just got to figure out what it is you There's a really good thing in is. the Sentinel fandom that focuses on an extreme external conflict um, motivator. Um, there's a tsunami. And it's told not from Jim and Blair's point of view, but from like the other cops in their unit. They're all looking for Jim and Blair. Well, Jim and Blair knew the thing was coming before it ever got there. So they like warned, you know, the, 
they're the reason that a warning went out at all. They're out there in the streets with water and they're helping people. They're just out there being a sitting on guide. <laughs> right. Know? The whole I, I've, time. I've read and, that story. Yeah, it's really good. And it the the tsunami is practically a character in the story. But how do you say her name? Nemesis. Nemesis. Nemesis? We're gonna say nemesis, nemesis because I'm all in on that being nemesis. Nemesis. Okay. So she pointed out the external conflicts that are pretty common man versus nature man versus man man versus himself and man versus himself in an, in an external conflict way is usually um he's done something dumb and injured himself <laughs> <laughs> that's me that's that's like my that's like my external conflict through my whole like, life like your character is halfway up a mountain with a broken leg <laughs> yeah or that um that terrible survival story about the guy the um the climber that fell down into that canyon and ended up cutting off a limb to get out that was man versus nature and man versus himself yeah his hand he cut off his hand there's a movie about that Ugh. i mean you actually gotta do what you gotta do to survive that's that's intense um and then there was that movie that had um Kate, Kate Winslet in it and um Idris Elba uh The Mountain Between Us or I didn't see it it looked stupid. Um it wasn't. I enjoyed it. Really? Really? I'll, I'll have it. to try. It. I mean, sometimes I watch a preview and I go that looks really dumb. So I'll have to I may have to check it out. Um, you, know, you know I love but Idris I Elba. Also, I also actually read a really good Team Wolf pick based on it. Really? You read, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. Hold, hold the phone here. You read a really good team wolf thing and you didn't tell me about it. <laughs> I think like I, I told think, Lady Holder the other night, stop acting like I cheated on you. <laughs> hey, she she does this about it's your writing. Weird. This, this, this is about your reading habits. No, no, that you broke the bro code. You know, when you when you read a really good fic, you tell your bitches about it. That's the rule. Derek and Styles were in it, and I believe that Deaton was the pilot. Um See, everybody agrees with me. You're supposed to tell you're supposed to tell your bitches when you read something really good. What's the name of that movie? And the Mountain Between Us? Is that what it is that what the name of the movie was? No, that's only your rule, Azure. <laughs> Azure's rule is she reads something terrible. She comes and tells us all about it. She reads a lot of terrible stuff though. So, you know. It's on AO3. Well, we'll find it later. Anyway, okay. so man versus nature. Maybe somebody else will find it for us. That would be awesome. That would um, be really great. And less stuff for me to edit out later. <laughs> <laughs> so external conflict can be, it, it doesn't have to be complicated. It, sometimes it's very simple plot devices that are the external conflict. Um, somebody, you know, uh, spill you know one character spills coffee on the other and that's how they meet and so you know they got to get the guy a new shirt before he can go to go to work and you know maybe he gets burned and they have to go to the hospital together you know it doesn't have to be intricate it doesn't have to be a battle it doesn't have to be a rip-roaring fight it doesn't have to be a temper tantrum in the bullpen um better not be a temper tantrum in the bullpen i mean just you know but also i think it's important to actually fully connect your conflict your external conflict with your plot and your characterization if anybody who's read most of you are probably you know if you if you're with me you've probably read or at least watched the movie harry potter and the deathly hallows now this bothers me a lot 
Okay, it, it, it bothers me a lot, okay? Okay, so one of the external conflicts, obviously, in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is the Death Eaters um, with the Snatchers, and you got Voldemort uh, looming in the background, always, always looming in the background to the very end. Um, you have the snake, um, is a, um, and you have the Horcruxes, which are our goal. And then you have these stupid Deathly Hallows. Okay. In the end, when the curse rebounds again, and Voldemort dies because he used the Elder Wand against Harry when Harry was when when Harry was in fact the master of death. The question becomes: Did Harry survive that curse? Did did it bounce because he had already sacrificed himself once? Uh, did it bounce because he was the master of death? Did it bounce because of the prophecy? You don't know. She's layered so many things on top of it that the actual defeat of Voldemort literally makes no sense. Because first and foremost, um, no, not really. Um, if the problem is, the, the problem is, is that the circumstances by which Voldemort dies in the book um, makes it invalidates the prophecy. Because Voldemort doesn't die at the hand of Harry Potter. There's no consistency there. Well, it's because the whole, while she had the, I don't think she pants the prophecy. She pants the Deathly Hollows, and she pants, like, I think everything about the resolution of her series was pants. I don't think, and, and that, and that is, um, that is the problem. I'm not trying to, you know, give the diehard pantsers a heart attack here, but it is a problem with um, pantsing is that it can lead to a lack of consistency. And they, I just don't think they ever worked it out. I think that what you could probably do with the Deathly Hallows, if you could take, there are elements you can take out of the Deathly Hallows and it doesn't change the ending. And the Deathly Hallows, the actual Deathly Hallows is one of them. Well, the wand, point, Dumbledore's wand doesn't have to be the Elder Wand for it to backfire on. Um, maybe it was just a stupidly loyal wand. It doesn't have to be a Deathly Hallow for it to backfire on Voldemort. Voldemort's own wine backfired on him the first time he tried to kill Harry Potter. Yeah. I mean, it's just, by that point, honestly, she had had to have a really exceptional editor assigned to her. She should have just called and said, I'm having issues. I need to work this out in a way that is a little bit more consistent than, you know, with all the things I've pantsed in. Um, I think she should have picked one. It either should have been the Horcruxes or it should have been the Deathly Hallows. It should not have been both. Yeah, I agree. But when you're a pantser, your second draft is your salvation. That's where you get an opportunity to fix, to find, to 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 find your problems, solve your problems, fix all the things. Now, now because I do a zero draft or a outline, ever ever how you want to call it. I used to call it a, a story document or a storyboard, but I'm getting used to calling it a zero draft because it actually makes more sense. And so I'm adapting, I'm adjusting because that's the mark of a enlightened human being adjustment <laughs> and adaption. Okay. So my zero draft is my opportunity to view my whole plot, my characterization, my motivations to make sure everything's the way it is. Um, my second draft so, so my first draft is, 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 is my run through and my second draft is my opportunity to make sure that I have not strayed too far off my zero draft and created problems for myself or, you know, pants the penguin. If you have pants the penguin, that's when you fix it. And, and, and if you read the original, 
Finding Atlantis, you will know, you will have noticed that there is actually a new scene um, in the final draft of Finding Atlantis where I introduced Avery um, physically before he comes up in a conversation. And that scene is new because I, I, I felt like he didn't have a, a tangible connection to the story. So I had Sebastian in between, you know, going around doing his thing with all these classes to going out to the dock to interact with Avery before Avery comes up in the conversation with Dr. Weir, which anchors him in the story. So whether you're a plotter or a plant or, or a pantser, your second draft is your opportunity to, to weave your story a little bit tighter and to also um, take away stuff that doesn't really work well, add things that you didn't put in or, or you should put in, um, fix a little, elements you might have added that you didn't plan to add um and just so that you could smooth everything out so that when you get to your third draft process which is which will be you know your beta and your alpha you know you're in a much better place i i look at the deathly house i don't think she got a second draft i don't think she bothered with one it doesn't seem like it it doesn't seem like it. And honestly, actually one of the things i will say about external conflict is there is a lot a lot of external conflict in Harry Potter. The whole series. whole series. A lot of it is contrived. It is very and it, contrived. And it makes Dumbledore look disgustingly manipulative. The mm. troll. The obstacles in the third in the, in the first year. The 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 fluffy. I couldn't Cerberus, thank you. Third the Cerberus. Fluffy. It's like really Really? And because there's so many of these contrived points, the reader is going to connect those with Dumbledore because he's the most powerful figure in the books, right? He's the most powerful figure in Harry's life through most of the books. So obviously all these contrived things that are coming that are happening, he's manipulating and planning them because he's an asshole, right? When it's just really the author. And so you don't really, you, you can't, I mean, you don't. So those actions have to fall on Dumbledore which makes him look manipulative and evil which honestly I never I don't believe for a minute that that was actually her goal no especially the way she talks about him I mean it is clear to her, to, that to her Dumbledore is her Gandalf and he's so reviled you know but how does how does a troll end up in a school that's supposed to have all these safety features and these wards well the, well, the troll was obviously there as part of the traps how did it get out how did he not notice that Coral was being possessed by Voldemort? Are you fucking serious? Why were all these traps so easy that a couple of first years got through them? Why did why were any of the children allowed out of the Great Hall while the troll was ro roaming free in the school? Weren't they all safer in the um in the hall? Oh, yeah. Yes, they, they were. Except for Hermione, and of course she had to get them out of the hall so that Ron and Harry could go rescue Hermione. Contrived. Contrived. Because the it also split the teacher's focus, right? You could have one or two teachers protecting all of the students, or you have to split the focus of, of the teachers to cover the students in four, at least four different locations. So it, it just, all of these external conflict that are in Harry Potter, the majority of them don't feel natural. The majority of them don't. It, and the thing is, you don't, I think that when you read it, when we read it, we don't assume that it, we don't, we don't jump to where we're, we're talking about right here. We're, we're doing a critical analysis of these things, right? But when you're reading it, you're looking for the why.
why. You're looking for the motivation. You're looking for what is it we don't see that is causing this weirdness. And that's why people jump to Dumbledore's motivations or all this other stuff of like what's behind it what's behind these weird the, actions because they don't actually make sense. The traps were geared towards the four of them because the mm -hmm. first time they encountered Fluffy, Neville was with them. The first trap is his, but he didn't follow the plan at the end. He tried to stop them from going instead of coming with them the way he was supposed to, which makes it look even more like Dumbledore set them up and Neville didn't play his part. And then at the end, he had to find another way to give Neville points so that Dumbledore, so, so that Gryffindor could win the cup because Neville didn't participate in the actual adventure like he was supposed to. <laughs> How dare he? Right? And so uh, it, it all looks deeply contrived. And then you find out that Sirius Black wasn't the secret keeper. Well, who cast the Fidelis? How could Dumbledore not know that he wasn't the secret keeper if, if he cast the Fidelis? How did he not get a trial? Wasn't Dumbledore like the high warlock or whatever at the time? So all these contrived instances that she creates throughout the series makes Dumbledore look worse and worse and worse and worse and worse as and it goes along. And then he tells you that Harry Potter has to die. He tells Snape that, tells the reader that. And you're like, oh, it is, it is, yeah. it is all contrived. This is, this is the Illuminati. And it, it's like, uh, it's all one big conspiracy, you know. You just and then it looks like Albus Dumbledore groomed Harry Potter from the 11 years old, or actually younger, considering he knew what a dark time he would have at the Dursleys. Um, he groomed Harry Potter for suicide. Which is the logical progression of thought there and that's really <sighs> no it's just it's it's, it's like she expected her audience to never grow up because these aren't things that children would see most children although my nephew was really deeply disturbed to find out to um, to believe to come to believe that there was no cps in britain <laughs> yeah right because <laughs> he didn't know how that had happened <laughs> you know eat kids eat kids Kids figured out that, that Harry Potter was an abused child when she when the author apparently was in denial about it. So but when it comes to when it comes to the she put in a lot of the external conflict and you can see how that all that external conflict that is thrown at Harry in the course of the books, you can see the direct connection to how it influences his motivations. You can see the connection between that conflict and his own internal conflict, that how his internal conflict in some ways has grown out of these external events that have been put thrown at him and how, so you can see that connection and she's actually drawn that connection very well. She just failed to consider if those external events made any sense at all. But it's also, I would, I would ask any of you to think about the scene where Sirius Black offers to let Harry Potter live with him and Harry Potter says yes. Did you think for a moment that that was out of character for him? Because I didn't. No, it wasn't out of character. It was, he was, it, it showed just how desperate he was to not go back to the circumstances he was in. I mean, she was working out some dark shit in her psyche in that story and just covering it up with fluffy magic but um at least that's my opinion uh so it's just something you have to look at very carefully when you're when you're throwing obstacles at your character um would that obstacle be thrown at that character okay all right let me give you a ridiculous example and y'all are gonna laugh okay but 
Vance is going to go on vacation. And for some reason, they decide they're going to leave Tony Dinozo in charge of the entire agency. The senior field agent, Tony Dinozo. Okay? Now, that might be an interesting plot device. Tony has to sit in for the director. Okay. But does it actually make any sense as external conflict? Does it make any sense that anybody would do that unless they're setting him up to fail or he has no credibility in that role? Nobody's going to listen to him. He isn't the right. I mean, it's just, it's all wrong. He, I doubt he even has a security clearance to sit in as acting director. So if you're going to put a character in a situation, it, it, it might serve the needs of the plot that the person wrote. A person could have, uh, oh, shut up. actually i have read one where he was injured and um i don't know if it's mar i think it's maro makes him like an assistant director um and puts him in charge of a bunch of things he doesn't want to do like political stuff and tony does really well and everybody's like what Okay, I, mean, I could see that, but I was like, oh, come on. I, wait, I saw that there's a story like that. I'm like, what? Stop it. Okay, so I, sorry. I thought I was making a ridiculous example. But anyway, um, <laughs> I'm feeling sheepish here. But anyway, my point is, is that it may serve a, an idea like that, may serve the, uh, may serve the plot a person come up, came up with. But does it actually make sense as good external conflict that is not going to fail the suspension of disbelief test? You know, when just, I it, was, um, I'm not thinking with better, better levels of ridiculousness, apparently. Yeah, especially when it comes to NCIS and probably Teen Wolf too. Uh, when I was um, developing the zero draft for um, Darkly Loyal, um, I had to ask myself, um, how do I get Harry Potter there? It, you know, it it didn't actually cross my mind I would have a difficult time getting Draco there for obvious reasons, but how do I get Harry Potter there? What do I have to strip away from him to get him down to his bones so he is more than willing to go back in time and murder the shit of practically everybody he's ever met? How do I get there? And in one of the earlier drafts, it was Draco that dies. Um, But I had a hard time getting Hermione there. Like, her logic interfered. She's a very logical person. And I felt like she wouldn't get there. Um, So I switched it around and made her die. And then it worked for me. It really worked. Because um, Draco's vengeful. And Harry's desperate. And hurt. And it, it was what it took. Now when I killed Draco in the original Zero Draft. That worked for Harry. But I couldn't get Hermione there. Because her... Her logic kept interfering, you know, her. So I knew that the only way I could get all three of them back in time is if basically she was dead and that she would accept, she would accept what they did after the fact, but that her intellect and logic would interfere if she was part of the, the re, if she was an active participant in the future, I had a hard time getting her to agree with it. You know, because she knows the dangers of time travel. But once she was back, it was done. (laughs) There was really no point in arguing it. These two buttholes she's married to have already done it. She's going to have to mitigate the... (laughs) Mitigate their circumstances, you know. And then the further they get into it, and the more is revealed, her own anger starts to build. 
And her own need for vengeance starts to build as well, which is why she ends up killing Moody because she's just so, you know, but I, but it took throwing her back in time and having her come up against all these obstacles to get her there. So they were, they had different levels of, of loss that, that, that they had to go through to get there. And I felt like by the time I finished my zero draft that, that I had done it. Well, I think you definitely did it. Well, in the, in the finished product, you definitely did it. Um, oh, and sometimes you have to play with that. And and that is an advantage of being a plotter over a pantser is you can work that stuff out ahead of time. Having a, a conflict like that, like, let's say Kira was a pantser and she started writing that story with Draco being the one who died. Um, and then she realized as she was into it later, you know, down the road that it wasn't working and she had to go back and try it with Hermione. It does require more work because it is, it's not impossible. And I'm not trying to discourage anybody. I'm just saying that, you know, the time, that time, you know, a, a pantser sits down and starts writing and Kira sits down and starts working on her zero draft. And that time, you know, it, that you have to make up that time somewhere, right? It, it, it all balances out. It, it's, we've talked about so the time before. I put it into my zero draft. You're putting into your second draft if you're a pantser. Right. If because you care. You, right. Because you have to, and we're talking to the pantsers who care. If you don't care, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. Um, it, you know, the pantsers who care go back and they they fix this problem. And sometimes it requires a significant rewrite. And there are times when that is daunting and perhaps too discouraging for somebody to, depending on the level of rewrite, they just don't want to go with, go forward with it again. And that's fine. Everybody has their own level of tolerance for, even as a plotter, I've had significant rewrites to do at times. And it can be... It could be something that's really frustrating and you need to set it aside for a while. But, you know, when it comes to figuring out, you know, when Kira talks about that, and I, I brought this up to say, if you feel like instinctively discouraged because you won't be able to, you don't work these things out ahead of time, you fall face first into them once they're a problem, you, then you just go back and you rewrite. I mean, you call it the hazards of pantsing, right? Is it sometimes it goes that way. But it's a perfectly valid process to do it that way. But it doesn't matter when you do your work. If you do your work in a zero draft like me, if you do your zero, if you if, if you do your work um, in a second draft um, as a pantser, you you're still doing the work. Mm -hmm. The work all has so to you, be done. So you still have to know what what these principles are. You need to know what GMC is and how it works, and um, you need to recognize your conflicts, both internal and external, so that you know. Um, where your characters are going and how they're going to get there. But when it comes to picking external conflict, um, I think always the goal with external conflict is to find things that don't feel contrived because that's what, the last thing you want your, uh, your audience doing is rolling your, their eyes at you or rolling their eyes at the story. Uh, it's like, oh, another one of those. Um, I was reading a Teen Wolf story. I think it was yesterday when I posted on MeWe about this. I was like, I cannot deal with another story that the plot device centers around the, the sh a county sheriff not having health insurance. I just can't deal with it. That cannot be the, ex please, can we use not use this as an external event anymore? Please. <laughs> it, it's not the way that works. Um, because yes, yes, financial troubles can lead, lead to e extreme internal struggle and they can be majorly a, a 
defining in terms of a character's motivation and their goals, big financial problems. It can lead people to doing really desperate things. So financial struggles is not a bad external motivator, but why can't it be, you know, a, a huge deductible because a werewolf tore out the back of the house, you know, and they, they can't, you know, they're having to get the house fixed and they're drowning in bills that way. Why does it have to be the implausible thing that a, that a, that a county sheriff doesn't have health insurance? And I know that in like season four or whatever, for whatever reason that styles, I know that styles I can house visit did not was not covered by health insurance and it could have been if if they had bothered to explain that it could have been a mental health care exclusion it's not likely that a county sheriff in california would have a mental health care exclusion but you could argue that maybe but people have taken that one mention in canon about Eichenhaus, which was psychiatric care, and run with it to be the sheriff doesn't have any health insurance at all. If the sheriff doesn't have insurance in the county, then none of the county employees have health insurance, and that makes no sense. No. It's just it's just silliness. So, yeah. But I mean, there are insurance yeah. plans that have limited psychiatric care or no psychiatric care. Like Mine has a very limited psychiatric care. I think I can get, like, 30 hours of therapy a year and Which actually compared to what some of some of some of what limited used to look like, i mean i think that i've seen that's plans, not bad maybe, yeah so i've seen plans that's almost like every other week that's more than every other yeah. week so you know but like i for a while i had um i had a plan that only covered inpatient psychiatric i mean that was it so you had to actually I think go i've got like 10 days of inpatient psychiatric care I mean, but, I mean, that's weird psychiatric care, right? That you would actually only be covered if you've gone. They're not going to do anything to prevent you from going into the hospital. But if you get to the hospital, you'll be covered. Like, what the fuck ever. Um, so there are, it's not uncommon for there to be weird exclusions around psychiatric It's like, care. look, we don't care about your depression. But if you have a psychotic break, we got you. Yeah. <laughs> but people have taken that plot point, And I know that they threw some other weird stuff in there that didn't make any sense with that plot point. But I real I I realist I realized that people have taken that they've taken something that was canon that they threw in bizarrely in canon that the sheriff doesn't have health insurance and they've run with it to a ridiculous degree. Styles gets a concussion and it's not covered and, and they can't afford to pay the bill and his dad is desperate and Styles starts selling his ass or whatever. It's come on. <laughs> is that a neck and throats prop? <laughs> no he's not selling his he, he's selling I actually, his chin i have to say i actually have not read that medical bills lead styles to prostitution i have not read that it may exist i try to when i give these examples try to do something a little bit more far-fetched than i've read so if that exists i apologize it's not something i've actually read it's usually more along the and lines we don't of, want links yeah it's usually more along the lines of styles can't go to college because of financial difficulties that kind of thing um but i don't I don't mind the financial difficulties as an external motivator. I don't mind it as the external conflict that they're struggling with. It's not a problem because believe me, I understand. I can relate. I don't actually, I don't necessarily want to read about it because sometimes I'm living it. Um, but I understand it. <laughs> we don't want to see links. We right. don't want links. So I totally understand that as an external conflict that these characters have, but get, make it realistic. Because there are so many reasons that they might run into financial problems. Styles' Jeep is fucking falling apart. Or, you know, maybe Styles has got medical bills he didn't want his dad to know about. If it's like season one, two, he's not wanting his dad to know. So he's hiding everything from his dad. Maybe he's going and getting an ER treatment out of town or something under an assumed name. 
and he's trying to pay these bills in cash. So, I mean, if you wanted the medical thing, you could do it different ways, but he's involved with the supernatural. I'm sure his house could get fucked up. And I don't know that werewolf attack is covered by their insurance, you know? So, I mean, there's, there's ways you could work financial stresses into and fuck he's going to college. You could build financial stresses in without That's it some being expensive shit. Right. <laughs> Especially since people usually send styles to Stanford, right? It's like the most common is send him off to Stanford. Berkeley would be much less expensive. Um, the three really good schools in the Bay Area, Santa Clara and Stanford are private schools. They're expensive as fuck. So I mean anyway, he had to get a scholarship. Absolutely. And even a scholarship. A lot of times even kids on scholarship just can't the Bay Area is hella expensive. Sanford's in Palo Alto. There are four thousand dollar one room apartments, like a month. A by month. Way. A That's month. Four thousand a month. Yeah. For for like for like a for our a, international audience. For like a four hundred square foot studio. I mean, it's it's insanely expensive to live there, and dorm living is expensive, and shared housing. I mean, um, I've known people in Palo Alto, two bedroom, fifty five hundred dollars a month they'll have four or five people living there and even though only two of them are on the lease because they just can't afford to be near school otherwise so you know the re realities of that part of the country is it's outrageously expensive to live in the bay area especially in palo alto um stanford's a private school even with a scholarship it's going to be outrageously expensive so there's ways to build in financial stresses they don't have anything to do with the implausible plot device of the town sheriff not having health to not having the county sheriff, not having health insurance. So, and I understand they're getting it from Canon, but people are running with it to an absurd degree. And this is fan fiction. We're supposed to be doing better, right? That's whole, the whole point. Do better. Do better than so, fan fiction. Don't repeat the mistakes you see in Canon. And also, don't use, try to avoid the really contrived conflicts that we get in Canon. Um, because we've already read those. So give us something new and something interesting. Yeah. Give us a pick where Harry kills Umbridge the first day of his year. <laughs> yes, let's do that. It could be an accident or not. And then they get some really badass teacher to, you know, to come in and teach them defense against the dark arts. Well, I killed Umbridge. Well, he killed Umbridge in Darkly Loyal, um, but that took that, that takes place after fifth year, so she's already done all the damage she could do at Hogwarts at that point. Um, but um, and then in is, is it Phoenix? No, it's Pendragon Legacy. He cursed her with a car uh, was it was a karma curse, and she fell down the stairs and broke her neck. <laughs> so have have Hermione kill Harry Potter. I'm not Harry Potter. Umbridge. Umbridge. Do not have her kill Harry Potter. You know, actually, I think it'd be really interesting and in character if Hermione overreacted to that. Well, not overreacted, but just reacted with the justice that we all feel in our hearts after that first detention. And Harry comes back bleeding. Yeah, I agree. And she's like, oh, oh, hell no. <laughs> and Umbridge is ne dead the next day. And Ron or Harry and exchanging looks like I'm not going to ask. You need to ask. I'm not asking. We don't need to know. If she wanted us to know, she'd already told us. <laughs> Hermione's sitting there reading, ignoring them. Uh, and and uh, to, to kind of detour a little bit back into internal motivations and conflict and stuff, because it's a little bit hard to decouple conflict and motivation. It me. is, because, because motivation it, feeds conflict and conflict feeds motivation. Yeah, it's they're a, very... 
There, it is definitely a... Whereas goals can actually form conflict and form motivation. It's like, I have this goal, um, which, motiv- which motivates me to do this and causes this conflict. But motivation, motivation and conflict are kind of like a circle. Yeah, they're very, they very much feed into each other and feed on each other. So when you're looking at, when you're looking at a plot device, like Umbridge tortures the students. Okay. That's your external conflict. Okay. And it's going to give, of course, something like torture is going to create internal conflict and, and some kind of motivation for Harry and probably his goal then just to stay the fuck off of her radar as much as possible. But Okay, so you put that device in, right? It, it and it's you've got Harry reacting somewhat appropriately. I'm, I'm I say somewhat because I'm not entirely. I'm never quite sure. I'm bought in on Harry how Harry reacted to anything in the series. He's the underreactor from hell. Um, so lack of curiosity equals lack of everything else. But there are a <laughs> bazillion side characters in Harry Potter. There's a billion secondary characters, right? And the people who should be reacting strongly to the students being tortured are not reacting at all. So you have to consider carefully what that says about what's going on with those characters. Do they have a really good, good reason for doing nothing? Do they have a really good reason for not helping these students? Do they have a really good found, you know, what, and actually I can't think of there, to me, there is no good reason, but it's something you need to ponder when you have. It demonizes all of the other teachers in the school that not a single one of them interfered with what she was doing. Exactly. It makes them all awful. So you, and you have to have that. We talked about this example also when it came to um, stories where Gibbs is openly abusive to Tony in the bullpen, that what does that say about everybody who stands by and watches it happen? And you have to be really careful because you also, you're not just working on your, con, you know, your GMC for your primary characters. You've got, you, you, to some degree, you need to understand what your GMC is for every character that interacts with your plot. I'm not saying sit down and, and, and do the same level of work, but be careful about what you're saying about them. When you throw these external conflicts out there that these side characters, these secondary characters don't react to. Because yeah, extra- Minerva shouldn't have said, keep your head down. Keep your head down. Potter. She right. should have said, close your eyes, Harry. I wouldn't want you to see anything unfortunate. <laughs> As yes. she murders her. <laughs> Let's see that handled. Because when you put in an external motivation like that, it affects more than just the character that is happening to. Something like Umbridge torturing people, it's affecting everybody at that school. When you know when when Tony's being abused in the bullpen, it's affecting everyone at NCIS who witnesses or hears about it, and the lack of reaction says something about them. So you have to be careful with your external motivators that you look at them and you've assessed what how is this going to impact everybody so who is exposed a, to it. Piece of characterization in Harry Potter. Everybody knows that Lucius Malfoy is a Death Eater. It is a secret to no one. And yet, in the ten years after Voldemort is temporarily defeated by Lily Potter, not a single thing is done about Lucius Malfoy. He He bought his freedom from the Ministry by claiming the Imperius. And not a single adult in Britain looked at that and thought, you know what, motherfucker? I'm going to solve this problem. 
He was a Death Eater. You know what would have made it really hard for Voldemort to come back and do and do harm? Is if he had no living supporters left to help him get resurrected. I wrote a, a story. Um it's called Dimensional Shift where Harry is um he's he's it's it's him and Riddle. They're all that's left. Um and he is about to leave and he tells Riddle that this is the end and I and I hope you find peace. And he's and Riddle says, I'll come back. And he says, There's no one left. There's no one left to bring you back. This is done. You're not coming back. There's no one left. It's all over. It just but it's appalling that these people who committed these crimes, like Lucius Malfoy, are allowed to roam free and buy their freedom where a character like uh, Sirius Black, who went to jail without a trial, and you cannot convince me that more than one person didn't know this. How could how could people not notice that he didn't get a trial? His crimes were so egregious that even a decade later, people were horrified and angry and furious. And yet, none of them noticed that he didn't get a trial? They all noticed that he didn't get a trial and they didn't give a fuck. That's it exactly. They didn't give a fuck. I mean, yes, all that of, is the dimensional jump one with um it's a Harry Draco story. All of the adults in in Harry Potter to me are basically morally bankrupt. Um it's hard to look at it any other way, you know? Well, that wasn't her intention. That's course, just the no. ramifications of her plotting. Such as it is. Of her plot. <laughs> it's the ramifications of her plot. She says she's a plotter. Okay, Joanne. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. I hear, I hear, I don't believe. <laughs> but one of the things that I look at when I look at my plot... Oh, um, one of the things I look at when I look at my plot is I look at my motivations, my conflicts, external and internal, and I, I, and I look for consistency. Consistency in the reactions, consistency in the consequences, because the consequences are just as important as the conflicts themselves. And if your consequences fall weak, then there doesn't feel like there's a resolution, and your reader might not even know why they don't like it, they just won't like it. They'll be deeply put off by it. And you ever read a story that you were all into and everything was going great. And then at the end, you have this overwhelming disappointment that had nothing to do with the length. <laughs> <laughs> I need to clarify because some people get disappointed just because it ended, not because of the actual content. <laughs> I mean, and, and you don't even know why you're disappointed. You just feel let down. Um, that's because the, the consequences of these conflicts have not been resolved in a way that is both satisfactory and logical. And that's probably why a lot of you, by the end of Deathly Hallows, you were like, what? All is not well. All is not well, Joanne. <laughs> this is not what I expected. This is not what I wanted. <laughs> How could everything be so well when I'm so upset? <laughs> this episode was badly written. <laughs> written. <laughs> Why are these things here? It makes no sense for there to be a bunch of crushy, choppy things in the middle of a hallway. <laughs> now, I know there are probably some people who are going to look look at the title of this podcast and think that, like, what we meant or what Kira meant by, you know, writing conflict would be like writing like a fight. 
Um, like two characters arguing. Which means I didn't read my summary. <laughs> right. Read the summary. That's a completely different kind of conflict. Um, but, but it is a kind of conflict. Uh, uh, physical altercations, um, attacks. Uh, arguments. The, the whole potioning um, trope in Harry Potter is a huge conflict. Um, uh, Molly Weasley herself was a conflict. Yeah, wasn't she? Well, like when you have two characters get into an argument, um, that that is a conflict. But it is also, in a way, you're creating an external conflict that is fueled by and then fuels subsequently fuels internal conflict. So, um, which can change motivations and can alter goals. Like your character can go into a conversation just being mildly annoyed with somebody, but depending on the content of the con conversation, what is revealed and the amount of anger that comes out of it, your character could come out of it homicidal. Or is that just me? <laughs> <laughs> or they could be completely fine with the character. Then. Right. They could, it could just be like completely resolved. So you just have to look at that, you know, uh, anytime you are writing anything related to, your plot events or your, your external conflicts. Um, you just want to avoid that contrived thing. You want to, you want to strive for internal consistency. Does it make sense for my character to behave this way? Does it make sense for them to have this reaction based upon how I've, I've written them and how I've worked up their psychological profile for whatever, for whatever that, is, whatever that is. Cause to some degree, you know, when you're working up a character bio, you don't have to know much about psychology, but you actually are delving into their psychological profile if you've determined that they have unhealthy attachments or that they have daddy issues or you know that gibbs you know is a source of male approval in tony's life is something he's never had before i mean you're delving into their psychological profile even if you don't call it that so it's just when you when you've worked up that that's the way you see the character and then you just got to write consistently to that because even if you go, well, I can't make this plot point happen if I if I stay in character. Well, then you need to fix your plot point. And I do see people get very attached to a particular thing. Like, I want this scene to go exactly this way. And yet they haven't written the characters in a way that would make the scene happen that way. It's like, well, you, you, you characterized in a way that was contrary to your plot. So what are you going to do? Now, I'm never a fan, ever, of sacrificing characterization uh, to further the plot plot point. But not everybody comes down on that side of the fence. So you have to just make the decision, but make the decision and do it, do it deliberately. Night, Tangerine. Um, Kira, are you still there? Did you mute yourself? I did mute myself. I was typing. Okay. <laughs> I mute myself. Because um, I, I was like, I was about to talk and I realized I was muted because you asked me. And I was like, yep, I'm muted. Um, I think that if you find yourself when you're reviewing your story that you're you're including work and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened if you're actually including these these words in your brain like you know, they're like part of your process you probably got a problem and then 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 there was a dead body which isn't necessarily a bad thing if you planned it or yes. if it like works with your plot if you didn't plan it you know so <clears throat> But internal consistency wins out. If you know your character, no matter what you throw in them, if you, you'll be able to figure out how they how they're going to respond. Go, okay, I'm going to throw this event at my character. What would they do? 
What would a sentinel guide do when there's a tsunami coming? You know, you'll know because you'll have worked out what, what your characters are like. And, and so, but when it comes to, when it comes to writing anything related to GMC, really, but, you know, conflict, motivation, you really do have to get into the character. You have to work it out. If you don't like working with a character bio, character profile, character sheet, even just some notes, I don't know how you're ever going to be, um, I mean, maybe maybe you're somebody who can hold it all in your head, but you're still working with a bio. If you really are holding all that data in your head, you're still working with a character bio. So this is not just about writing it down. Most people don't hold all that stuff in their head all the time. Yeah, it, you just got to know your character. You got to know the rhythm of their speech. You got to know what they hate and what they love and who they love and who they hate and who they fucked and who they want to fuck and it's really important to know who, who they want to fuck. Uh, <laughs> and what they like to eat and what they hate. And what makes them nervous and what makes them sad and what makes them scared. And what makes them angry. Because knowing all these things allows you to, de to determine how they're going to respond to the events that you have in store for them. Are they a fighter or are they a runner? Are they going to run from conflict or are they going to go all in? You have to know. Otherwise, it's going to come off tr contrived and unbelievable and weird. And your reader might not even know why it's weird, but they'll be like, I don't buy it. Something's wrong here. Yeah, sometimes you just get to the end of the story and you're just making a face and you're going, well, I'm not really, I'm not really down for some critical analysis on that story, but something just wasn't right. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? What the actual fuck? I mean, and you're like, I don't, and sometimes you're going, I don't even know what the author was trying to do. Um, but I, and the thing is, I've talked to many people over the years who don't like doing character bios. You don't have to do a 30 page bio. And yes, there are 30 page character bios out there. You don't have to do, if, if you're not level comfortable with that level of, of in-depth character work, don't do it. But especially with a fandom character, you may not need to do, because I mean, if you got a fandom character and you know that they're an only child, you don't need that section about, you know, siblings and who their siblings are married to and how many nieces and nephews they've got. Cross it out. You, you don't, you already need that, you know, off the top of your head, but work up something. What well, you need to know is, are they shaving every day? And if not, why? If they're a dude, you know, are they growing a beard? Do they just hate shaving? Yes. Yeah. Do they put it off. Do they go to the salon to get it? done for them once a week how are they handling that that's something you need to know and maybe you decide decisions about shaving on the fly but you you do need to know your character you need to know how they grew up you need to know where both their parents living is one our parents dead do they have siblings um you know are they religious what do they feel about religion are they conservative or or, or um liberal are they just sort of floating in that i don't want to talk about politics range and if so why you know so and are they in the closet mm -hmm. are they bisexual are they gay are they you know are they aware of it you know their their level of bisexuality you know it, are it, they manscaping i mean this is something i need to know <laughs> and maybe maybe you don't write all this stuff down but you need to sit down and think about it is what is this character like what do they do when they get up in the morning um but aside from basic biography questions, because if you look at the basic biography and you look at their biography, okay, well, what will somebody who lost their mother when they were eight, what does that look like? 
to somebody, right? What is somebody, because like if we talk about like Tony Dinozo, what is somebody who is then shipped off to boarding school right away and then military academy who has basically spent, and when he was younger than eight, he was sheltered, lived, you know, his mother treated him like a doll. So he's got no familial attachments. What does that look like? What does somebody who's been through that look like when they finally get to college? What does that college experience do to them? How does it shape them? And you just, you just got to figure that stuff out. You got to know it. And, and then when you understand your character, you'll understand how they're going to move through your story. And it all feeds. Every bit of it feeds. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Sahara. They, NCIS probably actually didn't do character bios. Sadly, they probably did some. They probably did some basic biographical information. Like they, they probably that, also don't have a series bible. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they probably decided at some point that Tony was an only child, and they pretty much managed to stick to that. But you know, other than the very basic biographical information, like his mother was dead, his father was alive, and he didn't have any siblings, they didn't do much more than that. And when we say you need, you know, at least at least a, a one sheeter on your character one sheet is a lot of information you know that can be a lot of information when were they born where were they born you know what were the circumstances there were they were they raised with money were they raised you know below the poverty level you know did they ever have to wear hand-me-downs did you know you need to understand these things about your character because it all influences how they react well i wouldn't be surprised if there were a couple dozen unknown denozos out there um when you start developing an external conflict, say with a government entity or an international entity, where do you, can you expand the question a little bit? Do you mean like, where do you start in the story or where do you start developing it? Or like, where do you start explaining the conflict or how do you start planning the conflict? I'm not sure if you mean like in the story or you're talking about in the planning phases, phases, phages. I can't believe I just said phages. I have no idea what a phage is. That would probably be spelled P-H-A-G-E-S, phages. Um, believable conflict. Um, so you, it's pretty, I would draw on, on examples of the kind of conflict you're thinking of in real life to, to see how that interplay would work. So for instance, um, in Intuitive, there's conflict with a budding or a government agency where you've got this government agency that's being brought up to handle the whole issue with psychic powers. Um, you've got interagency conflict that, that goes along with that, that's kind of bubbling in the background that's being teased about, that they're kind of like, you know, trying to hold on to the power they have, um, but that other agencies have power too, and they're kind of stepping on their, you know, you know, little sibling toes. Uh, there's also the whole issue of, you know, government overreach that gets explored there. Um, and so, I mean, and that in terms of for intuitive, that was, you know, that was a big, like, that was a big conflict with the government, you know, government, government style um, conflict that I was building up as an external um, external conflict, external motivator kind of thing for the for Tony. But that can to go dark with. really quickly. It can. It definitely does. So, so I I look at you know for doing that I looked at well what happens you know what does it look like when a new government agency comes up and you know what does it look like when we've seen examples of agencies having to work together and sometimes not working so well together and you know, and trying to make it be somewhat believable. Um, if, if you're trying to do, um, you know, if you're trying to do like, I mean, there are, I think there's examples like in, in the news, like between like, you know, 
CIA doing things they shouldn't do or the NSA doing things they shouldn't do and, and how other agencies respond to it. And, um, you know, and, and the FBI's position and all of that. And so you, I think you can draw on and look at how, when you're looking at planning, the planning that kind of conflict is what it's going to look like is, is try to find some sort of real world, semi real world model. And then look at look at what the what the players looked like and and how people reacted to it, how the media reacted to it, how social media reacted to it, and that kind of gives you a bead on on what maybe you should do, right? So like, there is no agency that just has complete oversight that can just act, you know, without any. There's there's always the Senate, you know, will will yank their chain if they get out of control, and that's the way it's supposed to work. So. When I read stories where, like, you know, an agency is just one particular agency is just gone, one government agency is so overreaching with their power, it doesn't really resonate because you're wondering why isn't anybody reacting to it. I see this sometimes in Stargate stories where the NID is just doing stuff that is absolutely ridiculous. It's like, why isn't any other government agency reacting to the level of overreach that the NID is? Because that's if the NID were a real entity, somebody would be reacting to that. Yeah. <clears throat> so the best way to make a believable conflict is to model it on something real. And I don't, I'm not trying to say like, you know, but you see that, you see that in TV shows where they model real life crimes in, in their case of the week. It may be something from a year ago or five years ago, but it has a familiarity to you because it's modeled on something real. And, and so that is a really good way is of, of modeling a difficult conflict is to look at how this kind of thing happened in reality a, and um, extrapolate from that. A couple years ago, we did a alternate universe challenge on um, Rough Trade. And that's when I wrote Synthetic. I also had an idea where I have a complete zero draft on um, a, a different AU a different alternate universe where John is um, an astronaut with, with, with NASA and um, Rodney is part of the international space station. And it is set up uh, differently than it is in ours, um, in our universe. And um, it was launched by uh, Europe. Uh, and he's the chief scientist on this, um, on this facility that's called Atlantis international space station. Um, and um, John is actually on Neptune and he is uh, an engineer and they are um, in the middle of a project when his ship is sabotaged. And the only reason he survived is he's outside of it. He was outside experimenting with um, a, uh, a jetpack for exploration of uh, of planets. So he had so he had a suit basically. Kind of not like Iron Man, but kind of he had wings and shit. Anyways, it's pretty cool. I even like had a little stick figure drawing. <laughs> <laughs> I was really invested in this. And what it boils down to is that um when I was looking at like what the conflicts were and how this was happening and um he is at the mercy of people on Earth. He's outside the ship and he has to get back in the ship and they're giving him all these instructions. And he's overwhelmed and feels like it's not going to work. Well, meanwhile, McKay is on the Air National Space Station and he's listening to this shit and he knows, he recognizes pretty much immediately that 
whether the person at the other end of NASA knows this or not, they are going to kill John Shepard with what they're doing. With the information that he's getting and the instructions that he's getting, he is not going to make it. And he cuts in and he strip and he trims down the entire process and says, you do this, this, and this, and this, if you want to live, if you want to get in to that escape vessel in time to hit your window, this is what you have to do. You've got 30 days of supplies and air in that vessel. If you do not eject before this moment, you're dead in space. So he listens to McKay and he gets out of the ship in time and he's in the right spot and he's got, and he's got his trajectory. He's heading for earth. Well, the powers that be on earth, the ones, the, the ones that want this um, mission to fail, it's, it's religious zealotry. They're trying to prevent um, exploration of space and a big failure on NASA's part would, would help with that. There it's a campaign of, uh, propaganda, misinformation, all that stuff. And so the people at NASA, the one who was actually relaying the um, information and instructions, had no idea that they were basically going to kill Shepard with this. But there are other people in powerful positions in the, in the agency. It's kind of like the NID in Stargate. that are interfering with the mission. And they're still trying to kill him. And Rodney figures out that NASA is going to miss Shepard and they're not going to be able to catch him with their smaller space station in um, in Earth orbit. They're not going to catch Shepard and it's going to be on purpose um, because of this one person who's in power. So he, he moves Atlantis and catches his rocket man, which is what he's been calling Shepard this whole time. And the story's actually called Rocket Man. And he catches Shepard. Because he knows if he doesn't that he's going to die. And so throughout the whole story, they're um, exchanging, um, they're having like these long conversations over the radio because he's stuck in this little escape pod. And so by the time they land, you know, John, John's practically in love. I mean, you know, he's like this, it's like a little bit of hero worship and a little bit of asshole worship because Rodney's an asshole and he saved his life and he's just like, you're my new best friend. <laughs> but meanwhile, the external conflicts involving um, what was happening with NASA and the religious zealots um, on Earth, that was my that was the external conflicts that they were working against. Um, and, you know, John's internal conflicts about trusting his people versus trusting this man he's never heard from before, who's running the International Space Station. Um, and Rodney convincing him to, you know, you have to listen to me, you're going to die. If you do what they say. So him setting aside all the trust he has in the people that actually got him to where he is, isn't, you know, is an immense moment for him in the story. Um, but yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, I wish I'd written it instead of the one I did. I think that would have gone a hell of a lot better than synthetic did. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I could see that. But for, I mean, Cause obviously that's baked into, um, I mean, it's a par- it was a parallel of the Martian, right? It was inspired mm-hmm. by the Martian. So I think the parallels make it a good a good fit for fan fiction, whereas synthetic was a really good fit for original work. Yeah. Um, it, and you had one of those moments where you kicked yourself in the ass and go, why did I do this? Right. Because basically um, I wrote original characters with, with fan 
with 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 fandom and names attached to them. They were so different that they weren't the characters that it was not yeah. John and Rodney. It was you just guys with John and Rodney's name on them. <laughs> well, I think they had there were some similarities, but I, it could have been that you were forcing those similarities. I don't know. I'm not inside your head. It just um, didn't feel it, it. It didn't feel natural, which yeah. is really weird considering it's called synthetic. But yeah. But, you but know, I do it, wish I'd written Rocket Man, and of course I will eventually start it because I still have the Zero Draft, and I'm really in love with it. And but there comes a there comes happen. a point you will it will happen when you you'll you every time you talk about the story you're enthused about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just my plate's so full, you guys. It's so full. Um, but when it comes to when it comes to conflict, um, as I said, we said earlier, at some point at some length and what that length is it's a little bit hard to articulate but i would say once you've hit ten thousand words your characters need some conflict um even if it's just that their car won't fucking start uh, they need something you have to have something because a a story cannot stories your interest in a story will not be sustained the reader's interest in a story will not be sustained by a story with no conflict um in whatever it takes jilly's original her her first original offering. Um, the external conflict is the time limit they have on um, this introductory and this relationship that they're building. You know, he, he has a finite amount of time to spend before he has to go back to his duty station. And that creates a time limit, which is, you know, an extreme external motivator for them both, because they both want this connection that they, that, that they see that's potential between them. Yeah, that time limit it winds up being a big factor. And then in the next book, it is the time apart, you know, is that that external conflict feeds hugely into the internal conflict of the next book because it's like, well, you know, we got this relation, we got our mutual pining pact, and now we've spent way more time apart, way more time apart than we've spent together. Is this does this make sense? And it creates this kind of dissonance. Like, why? What am I doing? You know, because you would have to think that that's that's realistic, right? You've been you're in a relationship with somebody you've known a week, and you got then got one additional weekend together, and and you you talk on the phone a lot, but otherwise you haven't seen this person. So you have to ask yourself: is is this this new love enough? Yeah is is what i'm doing makes sense my friends don't think it makes sense you know people think it's weird that that i'm you know i'm in in a relationship with somebody that i was with for you know i spent 10 days with (laughs) and and i haven't seen them in eight months so it creates this it creates a lot of internal struggle which you know i got that baked in (laughs) I didn't have to go hard, hard for it. Go very far for it. No, and that makes the more that 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 makes the most natural storytelling, because you don't have to um, you don't have to search for it. You don't have to reach for it, which um, makes it easy to avoid contrived circumstances. But the worst thing I could do is just not acknowledge how uh, how odd that setup is, and have them just both be. And it's not. It's actually not a problem for Eric because Eric is undergoing SEAL training. He's at Buds. He doesn't. He wants to be with this person he's got this connection with that he's falling in love with, but he's also busy. Whereas Sean, yeah, and exhausted. He's busy, and, yeah, he's busy and exhausted. Busy, exhausted, and hungry. Yeah. Whereas Shaw is, he's he's doing his daily life. He's finishing up his PhD, working as a T, you know TA. He's he's just going through the motions of life around people who are dating, and he's suddenly not. You know, 
and he's suddenly basically celibate and his friends think it's weird. And so he's got a lot of external forces pushing at him going, why are you in a relationship with some dude who's off in San Diego out of contact? This doesn't make any sense. And so it puts him in. in I'd be like, of, but you haven't seen this dude. Yeah, I was like, but, yeah. <laughs> he's thinking that a lot. He's, he's really pretty. He's really pretty. <laughs> it's worth the wait. And and there's these shoulders. <laughs> um, so it you know so there's some, and because it's a holiday story, I'm not trying to write it super angsty. So, but to not acknowledge that would would be disingenuous. That their situation is odd, and that even when they get back together for the holidays, you know, it goes right back to that same basic situation because you don't finish buds and just become a Navy SEAL. You've got two more years of training, um, but it's not quite the same thing. So then, then it's a matter of: do we want to stay be together? Do we want to? How do we work forward? And then they figure out how they go forward with their unusual circumstances that anybody who's attached in a relationship with somebody who's active duty potentially has to figure out. And this is a new thing for Shaw though. So. And Shaw has to ask himself, do I really want to be a Navy wife? <laughs> <laughs> well, Navy husband. <laughs> like, but I look, um, I look, he's like, I look fine in a mini skirt. So. <laughs> <laughs> I look great. <laughs> There's no worries. I mean, does he want to live on a military base? Um, does he want to marry this man? These, um, these are all questions that he would be asking himself. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, it seemed like a good it seemed like a good idea at the time, and but now, but to not acknowledge the the peculiarities of their situation would be it would ring false to the reader. So even if they didn't, even if they couldn't consciously pick out that that was weird, it would ring false. So you know, it's a balancing act of how to keep them keep that tone that is good for a, a Christmas story. But at the same time, deals with. So you know, I had to work out how to do that. I think I did a pretty good job. I'm going to write a Christmas story about a cowboy. Uh, well, he was in the Marines, and he had to leave. He had to um, not reenlist because his daddy was sick, and he had to come home and take care of the ranch. And um, so he's a cowboy and a former a- Marine, and. It's Christmas, and his best friend from the Corps is has some time off, and he's deciding whether or not he's going to re-enlist, you know, re-enlist for another tour. So he comes to spend some time with his friend, and um, they uh, they go from friends to lovers, and um, in a way, I, I don't think either one of them really expected what they would ever get. Um, so I'm really happy with my plot. So we'll see how it goes. But telling you. Hmm? I'm going to tell on you. She was listening to Juice Newton last night trying to get some inspiration. <laughs> I was. It wasn't I was, working. I, shut up. Because <laughs> what'd she come up with? Cows and guns. <laughs> well, playing well, yeah. with the queen of hearts. Yeah, she just she just tosses it out there. She goes, so far I got cows and guns. I said, so Texas. And Lady Holder's doing a Christmas story set um, in her verse with werewolves and a fae. So it's going to be a pretty exciting time this year for Christmas. Um, looking forward to that. She's poking. Uh, see. Shadow Light asks, when you write a situation with, say, the War Mages or the International Court, how much about their operations do you have worked out? Do you work out 
who can call on them and give them orders. Absolutely. Um, oh. In um, in the Magical Promise, uh, in my zero draft of that story, I actually even worked out what their jurisdictions would be. Like, who would have, uh, you know, what the International Court of Magic did. Uh, well, actually, it's the World Court of Magic. Um, what uh, the ICW did and what their mandate was for the War Mages, what the Protective of Magic did and what their mandate was and how they were created and what their jurisdiction was. Um, because Lucas used to be in the Protectorate. So I, I wanted to know what they did and what his back history was. And so in that moment in the interview, when he's talking about how he used to work for the Protectorate and one of the ways they, they let him maintain order was by killing people who didn't do what they were supposed to do. He meant that. <laughs> he literally did kill people who didn't behave. <laughs> that was his job. That that's what the protectorate is. Yeah, I can um, get I can get kind of, and I know Kira's the same way. I can get kind of all in on the world building. I mean, I figure out stupid shit. So, like it, you know, well, there's like a little Easter egg. I think it's mentioned once, but um, the head of the warm the, the the parent organization of the War Mages Division at the ICW is called the Magical Criminal Investigation Services. <laughs> Makes sense. MCIS. I I laughed at myself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just had to, right? I, mean, I had to, right? You know that temptation could not be ignored. <laughs> but it but it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Now this is Slither Black. Tony Tony will definitely not be working there. Sirius has got some other dick to ride. <laughs> yeah, he has another dick to ride. Yeah, <laughs> but only I would actually. I think I think I would only pull Tony into a, 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 a Harry Potter world if I if I had a dick he really needed to ride, and it, Sirius would be the obvious choice. But Sirius, has Sirius a already has a he has a fine soulmate. Dick to ride in yes, he does. He doesn't need another. <laughs> I think it's important to to know. When it comes to things like the ICW and the, the World Court of Magic, and you know the you know uh, um, other entities you might create in, in in your fiction as you're working, whether it be original or fan fiction, it's important to know how these organizations might impact your characters. Yeah, whether or they work for one or whether they're under the jurisdiction of one. Why have you created this organization, and how what impact does it have on your character? And this extends to. Sentinel Guide stuff as well, maybe especially because there's a lot of Harry Potter stories that don't touch on that on the, some of that wider um, that wider world building. But if you if you're going to use it, you need to figure it out. But um, when it comes to Sentinel Guide, you really need to sort out that governance structure and you need to understand how how many Sentinels and Guides exist on the planet. You know what percentage of people have any genetics that could allow them to be a sentinel guide what so what percentage percentage are strongly latent or could reasonably be determined to be latent what percentage of those who are latent will ever come online you need to work that stuff out otherwise you you, you throw some random numbers out there about a couple thousand sentinels and guides on earth and you're like well if there's only a couple thousand why do they have this big governance structure and centers in every fucking major city it doesn't make but sense but if you say that 25 percent of the world's population is sentinel and guide you need to know actually how big that number is because that's fucking huge. That is enormous. It, even 10%, it would be, it would be like uh, there are what? 7.8 billion people on the planet right now. Something like that. 
it's just it, it's an unworkable number and, and and you can't have just one center you can't just have one so it, you got to figure out there are 7.5 there are 7.53 million 3 billion uh, 7.53 billion people as of 2017 on earth so even 10% of that is just too many ridiculous it's just too many so you got you can't sustain um you can't so you got to just be careful when you do that so you got to think through those details because if you don't you, then you're going to put something out there that doesn't make any sense you know and you got to think about things like what fragile means and and how fragile guides and sentinels are handled because i've read stories that had stuff that just like made it just didn't make any sense because if people if sentinels were as fragile as people write them to be sometimes in stories they wouldn't be able to function they wouldn't be able to function in life and they also wouldn't be able to p- to fulfill their original their, role, their function, right? To be the watchman of the tribe. So you just got to be careful when you like putting these world building together. Does it all make sense? Do, 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 do the ripples of that world building choice make sense? Do I know how many sentinels there are in an urban population? You know, are there more likely to be set as things have changed? Are there more likely to be urban sentinels than rural sentinels? You know, because there's more threats to the tribe from within. You know, I mean, you got to just think through that stuff. Um, how do sentinels interact with each other? How do prides get formed? Um, what are the legal ramifications of a pride? Uh, how are how's the leadership decided? Um, like in the awakening, when Jim takes when Jim takes a guide, he becomes the alpha of his pride. He also becomes the alpha prime of the North of South, the, the the Pacific North North Pacific. Whatever that was. Pacific Northwest? Yes. Thank you. The Pacific Northwest. It was not coming out of my mouth. (laughs) I I can say I live there. I have practice. (laughs) (laughs) But this was something that I had to decide. And and it was built on instinctual hierarchy. It was like that everybody met Jim knew that that's okay. That's who you are. And there was no arguing about it because they all knew. They all knew the moment. They all knew that when... Because they all knew that Jim was a sentinel number one. He wasn't hiding it from other sentinels. And they knew that when he took a guide, that he would be their their prime. There was no way around it. So, but that was something that I had to work out before I ever started writing. Like what, like what that process would look like. Um, if there would be um, some kind of... Um, um, if, if, if there would be a ritual, if, if there would be, w- w- would he have to agree? Did he really get a choice? Was it built on um, sentinel strength? Is it built on a strength of connection with the spiritual plane? Um, is it more about his spirit animal or is it about him? These are just decisions that I made before I started writing. Because I'm a and, potter and that's what I do. That's what she does. <laughs> and when you make decisions about your world building, that stuff plays into your character's internal conflict, potentially, and also their motivations. Because if somebody is, that played hugely, the governance and how Sentinels and Guides work, played a lot into um, Tony Stark's internal conflict and his internal motivation in Demons. Because for somebody like Tony Stark, that kind of governance, that kind of structure, that kind of the way he saw guides, it, it, whether it was factual or not, it was his perception of how guides were in a relationship, attached to their sentinel, following their sentinel around, you know, being there to support the sentinel, all of that kind of stuff. His perception of all of that 
you know, it really made him not want to be a guide because he didn't feel like it was going to fulfill him. It was going to allow him to live out his dreams and give him what he wanted. And it just, it just wasn't, it, he wasn't, wasn't interested at all. And so that had to be resolved over the course of the story. And actually it was one of the, it was like the primary point of the story. The primary lens of the story was Tony getting to the point that he wanted that it didn't matter about the Sentinel Guide thing was almost irrelevant. He wanted to be everything he could be to Dom and that it didn't take anything away from him. And getting him to that point was what Demons was about to where he wanted to be a guide. Now I did have some people express some disappointment that Tony when it came online because they really wanted the story where being online wasn't important and that Sentinels and Guides could have relationships with people who weren't Sentinels and Guides and um, <sighs> it's just that's not a kind of story I would ever write. I would never write a Sentinel falling in love with somebody who was mundane and was never going to come online. Um, it, it's not my personal jam, but I did. Ha- so, so I mean, I'm like I heard I heard their disappointment that they really wanted that story, but they're just going to find it from somebody else. And I promise you, I'm never going to write it. It doesn't even appeal to me at all. No, because the Sentinel Guide dynamic is what I really like, and so I wanted to write a. T- Tony Stark that had issues and then in the end didn't have to give anything up to become a guide and he got everything in return. I wanted it to be an enriching, fulfilling thing for him and not something that made him made the things better, that, that filled in all of those blank spaces that he had that banished his demons rather than validated them. So, and I thought it was pretty clear and stick around that that's the direction that series was going to go. So, I mean, it was telegraphed. I foreshadowed. I never thought in a million years that Tony wouldn't come online. But then I know your work very well, and I know your preferences. And so I I guess somebody coming in who'd not really read much of your other work might have thought you'd go in that direction, but it was never on my mind. You certainly didn't put anything into your story that made me think that Tony would never come online. Yeah, I tried not. I try not to do red herrings. I'm not that kind of writer. Um, If I'm going to throw a red herring into the plot, it's going to be like it's going to be like a misdirect on a case or something, and it's going to be because the killer is giving them a red herring, not because I'm trying to mislead somebody about my characterization or anything like that. The intent of that story was always for Tony to get to the point that he wanted to be a guide. Not just accepted it, but that he wanted it. And it wasn't because he wanted to be a guide. It's because he didn't, he wanted to be everything to Dom that he could be. Um, from Dom's perspective, Tony was already his guide, so it was academic. So... But then there would also, I think, be this lingering thing was, if, if what if he's out one day and he meets an online guide and they click? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> That'd be that'd be it'd be a, that'd be a difficult bit of uh, conflict, internal conflict to get over because I don't know how could, he could not have that neurotic fear constantly that his his sentinel yeah was going to find. I a would have that day. neurotic fear constantly. There's reasons why if sentinels and guides actually existed, I I wasn't a guide. I wouldn't marry a sentinel on a bet. No kidding, because that's just heartache waiting to happen, and you can't even blame them rude (laughs) yeah so my you know i did look at you know i wanted i never i don't like writing a dystopian style sentinel guide governance i I, there are stories that are like that where it 
you know, either the government controls the Sentinels and Guides or their own, you know, governance structure is really ugly. That's not something I would ever write because I like reading, writing and reading about it being like a nurturing part of society. Something that is beneficial, you know, that, you know, it works for everyone. That it's, you know, very organic and um, it's this whole like little ecosystem. So I, I would never write something where, but when I made the structure, I wanted to make a, a Sentinel Guide structure that from the outside would be unappealing to somebody like Tony Stark, because I wanted that to push him into choosing not to become a guide, into choosing to, to think that that was something he wouldn't want, because I wanted him to go on that journey of coming to the realization, coming out the other side changed. So, you know, that was an influence. And I would think that the, that the whole, that it being well-governed and that it being kind of, that it having that appearance to Tony of like being an institution would be very off-putting to somebody like him. So it, it all, you know, it all is, it's, it all plays together. It's, it's very difficult to separate out um, when you truly get it all together. That's the way it should be. That all of the internal and external GMC should all just be this big mash that works together. They all feed on each other. They fuel each other. They play into one another. And it's just this, it's a system as opposed to just isolating your conflict and isolating your goals and isolating your motivation. It's very enmeshed and it should be enmeshed with your world building too, because it is, I can't think of anything more bizarre is when I read world building elements that have no impact on anything happening in the story. It's like, why are they there? Yeah, what is this here for exactly? Yeah, because they were cool. Shiny object syndrome is a real problem. Just because it's cool, if you're not planning on doing anything with it, don't pick it up. Except literally, just make a note of the cool thing and put it in the story where it actually serves a purpose. I feel you, I feel you Shadow. I. It's hard to not put all the shinies in my stories. <laughs> it is hard. Did we miss any questions? Oh, no, it doesn't look like we missed mm -hmm. any questions. That's true. Having a beta or a good bounce buddy who can look at your work and go, really, was that necessary? Are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> Is that really what you meant to do? At yeah, and they're all... like, at what point do the rocks fall and kill all these assholes? Because I'm looking forward to that part at the very least. Yeah, so it's like you put a character in your story, like nobody else has got magical powers, but you put your character in your story who can create portals the other side of the planet or portals into another dimension and you go okay and you the character your character reveals this deep secret that they can create portals to other dimensions let's say other dimensions right and the character goes oh let me see let's go to portal and you think that this is about to be oh my god they're going to portal to some other dimension something's going to happen there and you go and the character goes oh let me see i want to see a portal let's go somewhere and the character goes no i'm forbidden from ever making portals it's like Okay. And you're waiting the whole story for this portal thing to come back around because it's got to be important, right? Right? It's portals to another dimension. It has to be serving some purpose. But and no. yet, it doesn't. But no. They really meant it when they said they're not allowed to portal anywhere. <laughs> Why give them the ability if they can't use it? <laughs> and how do they know they have the ability if they can't use it? Who forbade them? Where'd this rule come from? I have so many questions. Is this like a hallucination, actually? Are they mentally ill? And the funny thing is, everybody believes them, right? Exactly, because that should be the question. Are you mentally ill? Because magic's not a thing. So it's like, 
are you mentally ill? Is this like Fight Club? And yet everybody believed that they could make these portals. And yet they can't apparently make these portals. They're not allowed. I am I'm I'm changing the names to protect the guilty. Um because it wasn't portals, it was something else. But it was on the level of <laughs> It was on the level of portals to another dimension that they were forbidden from doing. And it never came around why it was forbidden. They never made a portal. That's like saying, I can I, I can fly, I have wings, but I can't show you, and I can't do it. I'm not allowed. Right. And, and you assume, because it's dropped in the story, that it's going to come up, that it's going to be important, right? This has got to be foreshadowing of some kind. It's got to be important. It's It's humans flying. It's portals to another dimension. It's whatever it is. It's got to be important. But no. It was just a shiny thing that somebody thought of. Port- I, I, honestly, I don't see how it's all that shiny portals that you can't actually use. <laughs> I mean, if they ain't going to help me get to and from the Safeway faster, I just don't see the point. <laughs> well, see, Sarah, I just I mean, your characters actually do a portal, right? They just don't say they can make a portal and then never do it. I mean, what the fuck is the point of that? <laughs> Yeah, but is he really invisible? Now, I will say there can be an element of, like in Deadpool 2, they introduce all these characters with powers. You're like, how is that going to come into play, right? And then basically kill them all <laughs> right away before they ever get to use their abilities. And the only one who survives at all is the one who is lucky. It was awesome. didn't have any abilities. But Deadpool's like breaks all the rules, right? So generally a bad idea to introduce powers that you're not going to use. But good idea in Deadpool because he introduces all these powers and Deadpool's impressed by them and then he gets them all killed. Well, who knew those wins were going to be so high? We all did. <laughs> we told you. Domino was awesome. Best superhero ever. Yes, I want her superpower and her hair. Right? Her hair was on point. Her hair really was. And she's hot, just in general. At a moment of um, clarity in that movie, my nephew and I went to see it together. My, my Padawan, he said, I hate that kid. I said, you're supposed to. He said, what? I said, you're supposed to hate him. You're supposed to not like him. He's supposed to be unlikable. Mm-hmm. That's the point. He's unlikable and Deadpool does for him anyway. Because that's what superheroes are supposed to do. They're not supposed to just help the people that are likable. He is making himself unlikable. Well, and Cable, Cable, what Cable was doing wasn't unreasoned, right? Right, and and honestly, the audience probably realistically disliked that kid, Firefist, whatever his name was. I can't remember his name. I can't remember his name either. But like, you know, I actually was like, okay, Cable, I understand, I get it. Go ahead and shoot him, Cable. I mean, I was at that point, Cable, just go ahead and shoot him. Um, but, you know, but that was never the point. The point was that Deadpool was going to save him anyway. From himself. From the and self-destruction. Literally from himself. From the path he took. Just one more one more act would have taken him down that path. So. And my, and my on was like, well, damn it, now I can't hate him. <laughs> I said, that's the point, too. But sure, you he can. Huffed. He huffs it's, the whole way home. Huff, huff. It, it's, say it's human. Go ahead and hate him. It's all right. <laughs> it's not your job to save him. It's Deadpool's. <laughs> but you know, then you know, once he understood him, it was difficult to ha- still have that. You know that 
yeah distaste for him you know it's like you know that's the thing once you understand somebody else's struggle it's difficult if you're you know not a a complete fucking psycho to have empathy for another person to understand their circumstances it goes back to that thing you know don't judge someone until you've walked them on their shoes because you don't know their struggle you don't know what they've gone through um and once you do understanding their 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 trauma and their struggle it's it's hard to hate them for it like incidentally by the end of harry potter i wasn't like you know people always talk about voldemort you know and people saying you know what he really wasn't the worst part of harry potter because umbridge was and the more you learn about umbridge the more you hate her but the more you learned about tom riddle the more you pitied him yeah you're like he needs to die sooner maybe better but he just needs peace he doesn't have any peace he needs peace he needs peace and never just like she needs to just she needs to go live with dementors for, for the rest of her life her life they need to eat her very slowly well i think the thing with umbridge is that yes she's very recognizable in our everyday life but also she was like lawfully evil in her circumstances she, she was right she is if she is what a lot of us fear right is is government backed you know oppression and there's a very real visceral fear that a lot of people rightly so would have about that kind of thing she represents that government sanctioned it's terrible and yeah, and yeah it's, i'd it, be perfectly content with tom riddle going to azkaban um but i really wanted umbridge to die well i wouldn't want riddle to go to azkaban if because because i did have empathy for him i just thought, thought he just needed to be fed up his misery because yeah I mean, dementors. it does not put down a mad dog you know um yeah. because the question becomes is did the did the mentors go back to azkaban after the war was over or, or what if they took those dementors back they're fucking idiots <laughs> it's dumb but then you know consider the source um yeah i mean you know and also the more I learned about Severus Snape, the more I hated him. The more motivation that was revealed to me, the less like a hero he looked to me. Why a lot of people are like, oh, he's so heroic. He, you know, he died for love. Oh, fuck you. Died for something. We're just not 100% sure what it is exactly. I wouldn't want his version of love. No. Just, ugh. And the more you learn about him, the just the more disgusting he was. And also, knowing what you know about him, and then his final moment when he asked Harry Potter to look him in the eye, does it not want to make you want to stab him in the face? Because it does me, I want to stab him in the face. <laughs> Just right in the face. I'm with you. Oh, God, ass. Look in the corner. She can't go one podcast without. You know, honestly, it wouldn't even be a real doll. It's probably some witch he's been holding hostage with polyjuice for a decade. Gross. Gross. Do you guys have to follow these things all the way out to their logical conclusion? (laughs) I I need a ceremonial stabbing knife right now. I need new friends. (laughs) No, you don't. You love us. I do love you, bitches, but I'm going to give you all a corner. It's more corner time. I'm going to find an unfunny. Look at that lady hold her line, her ass off right now in the chat room saying she's innocent. She absolutely, she's never innocent. Now, the least innocent person in the room may be actually be ass, but Lady Holder's <laughs> never innocent. Love is indeed and helping it, hide the body. It was obsession. Um, 
Which actually it was never is why a healthy. It was it, it was never a healthy love to begin with. Um, actually, because of the obsessional nature of his love and what's baked into Harry Potter canon about the effects of um, amortentia, is that how it's pronounced? Um, it, it's why if, if you want to write a Snape redemption arc, it's pretty easy to go right to potions that were fed to him when he was young, because his his love for her was so twisted. It wasn't love. So, who would have done it, Dumbledore? Uh, yeah. And if he did it, why? Well, in Aliomoto, he did it because um, he saw the close bond between, which was friendship because Snape was gay, but Dumbledore didn't know that. But he saw the bond between Lily and, and Severus and didn't want that getting in the way of her romance with James. So she he gave him the potions to turn his their friendship into this obsessional love which would push lily away that is so bizarre what an asshole what an asshole i don't think the marauders even as idiot that that i try to look at the marauders as being literally being idiot pranks but giving somebody amortentia would not be an idiot it's not prank. an idiot prank and actually i don't consider giving anybody a love potion an idiot prank and Although, also i don't think that james would have been a participant in a thing like that targeted towards Lily. Because yeah, even that could have easily turned on them and Snape could have killed her. Yeah. And he even created a, such an ugly obsessive love. I mean to me that's a malicious prank on on the level of rape. And so I would be hesitant to write very I wouldn't do it. Not just hesitant. I wouldn't write no. a, a prank from the marauders going to the level of, of rape. And that's where I what I and I know that the, the Harry Potter canon is pretty cavalier about love potion use and even honestly uh, subverting people's will but i just find that to be really ugly so you know robbing somebody of their personal agency is just now that's exactly what i did to severus and leomoto but it was a villainous act it wasn't a prank it was what dumbledore was doing to try to guide and control the situation to ensure that severus and lily wouldn't wind up a, a, a romantic couple and it worked so you know, and that and and part of that was because I needed to give Severus a reason. He needed to hate somebody more than he just he he had a, he needs to have a bigger problems with somebody than he had with Voldemort, right? To go back in time and agree to be Voldemort's father, he, there had to be something, right? It had to be something major. And having to go through this life over and over and over again, where he's robbed of his personal agency, where he's robbed of his his free will, his right to consent, where he's his friendship with the only person he'd ever cared about in his life is perverted into something ugly, and having to do that over and over and over again, and then to become a Death Eater, and then to get tortured to death or murdered in every single life, it was powerful, powerful motivation for him to be willing to do anything to not let this happen again, to stop it. Even if it meant that he had to be Tom Riddle's father, which is what he agreed to do. I think one of the more powerful moments is when you have him make a change um, and he finds out that it's altered the path and he says, oh no, not her. And I was like, oh no, not her. <laughs> what are you yeah. doing to my unicorn? <laughs> Where he thinks he, he might have done something to Hermione. Yeah. Yeah, he thinks that he might have prevented the existence of Hermione. Mm -hmm. Um it was like, not her. <laughs> I was right there with him. <laughs> because um that was um 
that Hermione's ancestor, her ancestor is the child that Lucius Malfoy adopts because it's his nephew who was his, 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 his uh, squib sister was cast out from the family and she had a child and that ultimately led to Hermione. So it was, it was a moment. It was a moment where it's like things that he's changed things. He has changed these, these things, changed things for the Malfoys, not Lucius Malfoy. Uh, uh, obviously not Lucius, Lucius' grandfather. Abraxas. No, not Abraxas. Abraxas is, Abraxas is a baby in this one. Um, oh, okay, okay. You have to go back further. I yeah, forget his I, name, by, but I know who you mean. I'm blanking on my character's name. Yeah. Um, but it was like, it was a moment for me. I was like, ah! <laughs> Julie James, what are I you had, doing? What did you do? <laughs> but, you know, working on, when, when looking at like because Snape would not have had good feelings about Voldemort in any life. So I had to really work on what those external events were, were going to be, those to lead to him being conflicted enough and, and motivated enough to, because it is, it is a conflict motivation, you know, circle there to want to go back in time and raise Tom Riddle into a better human being. And it, so it, it was it was pretty powerful. I thought it you know I really worked on what that motivation would be, and and how it would impact him, and to get him to feel like it was something that he would be like, yes, I don't you know I don't care, just anything, anything to make this be different. And and finding that motivation in your character is super important to authenticity, um, and suspension of disbelief, which we've discussed in the past. Um, if you get your motivations wrong, your um, your whole story is gonna is gonna ring false now leo moto is not up right now a leo moto is it is it's almost ready for like beta but i having somebody kind of that had to reread it to see because the world the magical world building when i re, when i was working on editing it i was like oh my god this is so complicated <laughs> not <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't feel like it was overdone, but I felt like it was really complicated. And so it made sense to me, but it made sense to me because I created it. So but I didn't realize until I was doing the edit how complicated it was. And so I, I you know, I have asked somebody who has only ever, only ever read it one time to, you know, to read through it and, and see if it, if it makes sense, if it's confusing, where it's confusing. Because I think there's going to need to be a little bit of fleshing it out, fleshing out of some of it. So it's not quite so, you know. I think I think I shortchanged some of the explanations a little bit. And you can sometimes, especially if you know the content, if you, if you know your backstory really well and you know your world building really well, sometimes you can read more into the, your words than are actually there. Yeah, and everybody else then is going, "What? I'm so confused." And you're going, "But it makes perfect sense." And then you explain it, and you go, "But none of that stuff was on the page." <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, but it was all in my head. Know. Oops. So that's where, and in that one, you know, I'm at the point where I'm kind of like comfortable going to, even to publication, publishing without beta these days. But um, when it's something that it's like, is this going to be comprehensible? I really, that's where I really need to get other eyes on it to say, okay, that made sense. That didn't, or this is really confusing. I don't understand what you're trying to say here. Or and sometimes something can seem inconsistent, even though it isn't. And it's just because it's underexplained which could be really easy to do when you're trying to make any kind of sense of Harry Potter. And, that, and it really helps at that point to have a really, really honest alpha reader who isn't afraid to ask you questions. Yeah. It doesn't help if you've got somebody who's worried about stepping on your toes, you know, um, or who just 
wants to read your stuff first and will and will kiss your ass for the privilege because that's not that's not offering you any sort of help no it's just it's just and i do think sometimes people are like they're it's it's sometimes right hard to strike the balance with somebody you don't know it's like you're very careful which is fine it's better to be careful and approach things with questions and you know I, I, I'm more blunt with like Kira and Lady Holder now than I would have been, you know, two or three years ago. Um, but, you know, you go into it with kind of, but the person who goes in, it, it, that's, that's, to me, that's a better approach as someone who goes in like a bull in a china shop who also is very attached to being right. And usually the person who comes in like a bull in a china shop when they don't know anything about your work um, or, or they've never baited for you before or whatever, is they're usually very attached to their opinion too. So if you don't take their advice, they're going to get really bent. If you I, encounter I, someone that they, they do that to you, they get really bent. Mm-mm. Away. Run. They shouldn't be attached to their opinion about your work. Cause that's rude. I had a beta tell me once. Is this a lady who wants to take the dragons out of your emergence? No, no. This is a potential oh. beta, but she said that um, I disagreed with her about a couple things she had said. I want this is back in my ex house days, um, and she said that um, I was like, I, I just don't agree or whatever about this. This I said because she wanted to review the points, right? So she wanted me to give. I don't know. I don't remember how exactly how she phrased it. This was a long ass time ago, but it was something about she wanted to do like a follow up, like on all the questions or points she had raised, and she wanted to discuss it. <laughs> and it it didn't seem weird to me when she made the request, although it certainly seems weird now that she would want a follow up. But like when when we were, I was like, I don't understand why you're so insistent about this. This just doesn't really work for me. This change you want, and basically, I'm paraphrasing here because, like I said, it's been like 20 years. It was, it was something like she wanted. She did. She wanted to always feel like she put her stamp on a work. I'm like my work doesn't need your stamp. It, it needs I to be stamp. Eyeball? What? No. It, it needs to have no stamps from you. Okay, none. Right. It's not her story. And so the fact that she would go into betas feeling, and that's what she did. She baited for a lot of people, but that she would go into beta feeling like that it, her mission was to put her spin on it or her, put her stamp on it or whatever, make it feel like she'd contributed in some way. I just, I think the contribution is it has less typos. That's great. That's a wonderful contribution. That's your stamp is it's clean, reads cleaner than it did before. Um, and if that can't be enough, that, I, that that's just, that's all you're going to get. So, but yeah, it was, it was just such an odd thing. She wants to put her stamp on it. I don't think I've got my stamp on this. You're not supposed to. It's not yours to stamp, asshole. I don't get it. I mean, I, I'm, I don't appreciate people who try to have ownership over my work, which is why I never, ever take um, 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 plot advice because they just can't. They're not going to, it's not going to work. Mm-mm. If you're so in love with your advice that you have to write your own shit. <laughs> I don't understand why you aren't writing your own shit. I mean, I, I have to admit, as a beta, I think I give people very good advice. I think I do. They ignore me sometimes, and that is perfectly fine. That is perfectly fine. But also sometimes annoying if it's really wrong. If they're really wrong. But- I mean, I get it. I mean, I have given somebody advice once, and I was totally ignored. And I was like... This was a professional effort, uh, and she was like, um, 
going to self-publish it because she couldn't get anybody to publish it because it had this really humongous plot hole in it that I told her about repeatedly and she wanted to put my um she wanted me to do like a a, a review for it for her for her Amazon page and I went nope and she told me I was mean and I was like I am actually doing you a favor because I have nothing good to say nothing the reason your book stayed in the slush pile for a half a decade and you're self-publishing it is because you have this giant plot hole that you refuse to address out of vanity so no hell no well an editor should never try to put their stamp on your work it, it isn't i mean it, you're not supposed to be able to read on your, author, your, your author voice that's not that should, that should never be on their agenda no you shouldn't be able to read a book and go oh i can tell that this was edited by marie it's like really wow really i mean in what way <laughs> jesus because the editor should, sh um, should have no voice in your book no they should be if anything they should be able to be looking at for what your voice is and helping make sure your voice is clear by because sometimes there's noise and it gets in the sometimes you know we use too many words and it actually can dilute our own author voice and a good editor helps you bring that out rather than put their own stamp on it that's just a ridiculous but you know i was i was a lot younger then but still i was very territorial about my writing 20 years ago always always but i've always been very territorial about my writing so somebody trying to put their stamp on it really offended me but i didn't i could have well it should and i could have articulated what exactly was like bugging me about it so bad i just knew i didn't like it I'm like nope um the heifer right um uh, but you know when it, <laughs> like I said, when i beta for somebody else i'm not if they don't take my advice that's absolutely perfectly fine i say that even though there are people i've refused to beta for again and it's not because it's not okay that they didn't take my advice it's because when it comes to subjective stuff if i say look this seems really like this character is acting out of character if they don't agree they don't agree but when it comes to the stuff that's relatively objective like, you know, this is just flat out wrong. You should have had a comma there or whatever. Or you need to be consistent about how you, you know, capitalize these terms in the magical world, right? You need to have consistency. And if they refuse to do that, I feel attacked. Things, not you. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at it. I will randomly capitalize the shit out of things. You, For some reason, I capitalize atrium. And now I like magic repeatedly. You are, you are a random capitalizer. But if I point it out to you, you clean it up. Yeah. But you don't ignore it. And that's my point. Is if somebody is consistently ignoring the things that are objective mistakes. Because no, they don't have to take my advice, any of it. But what they're doing is they're wasting my time. Because there's literally no point in me wasting time on their work. If they're just going to ignore the stuff that is objectively wrong. Why bother? And yes, that happens. That happens actually a lot. I have actually had someone. Um, I, I was like, you know what? Don't even put my, don't even put my name on this. I don't want to be associated with it. I'm so embarrassed. Yeah, I had to have somebody pull my name off of a beta one. Well, I've told you guys this before. It was because I corrected her all of her spellings of viscous to vicious because she meant vicious, obviously, contextually. But she decided that that's the way she spelled it her whole life and that I must be wrong or something. And so she didn't accept any of the corrections. And I, my name's on this fucking thing. And there's all these instances of people with viscous behavior. And I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> That's 
so I write her and I'm like, why didn't you fix this? And she said, well, that wasn't right. I said, yes, it is right. Look at the goddamn dictionary. And she says, well, that's not the way I learned it. And I said, well, I really don't give a flying okay. fuck. I said, you know what? Take my name. Please take my name off it. Because it is embarrassing to me. It is embarrassing that people think that I don't know the difference between viscous and vicious. Did Did she fix it? Well, she took my name off of it. I don't know if she ever fixed it. Because it went up with that in there. That's how I knew, right? She published it. And I was like, oh, he acted viscously. I can't deal. I- <laughs> His viscous- she viscously could not deal with this. <laughs> his his viscous words, you know, cut deep. I was like, oh my god! And so I wrote him like, what the hell? Why did you leave all those typos in? And she says, um, and she, that's when she told me that it's it's not the way it's spelled. I'm like, it is the way it's spelled. That's that vicious is not spelled with that extra s in it, and it's got an i. <laughs> Two eyes. And, even. and so she, she, and then when she came back, she finally did go look in the dictionary. And she came back and said, that's not the way she learned it. I said, well, I don't care. Would you take my name off of this, please? My friends all think I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I've got standards and you're exceeding them. So, I mean, you know, but that doesn't, it doesn't happen often that I have to tell somebody to get my name off of that piece of crap. <laughs> but it does come up. But no, if that some- may sound mean and we don't care. I mean, I don't know why you're asking for beta if you're that determined to stick with your typos. So, but yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, if somebody's objectively, if there are objective mistakes that are objective, like it, it's like any kind of grammar or dispel, grammar checker or spelling checker would point these out or there are, are uncontested elements of style, um, like, you know, comma splices or something. If they're just ignoring that because they want to, they're just wasting my time. And there's no, I'm not, it's not about them ignoring my advice. It's about them wasting my time. So, and they won't get another opportunity to do that. New, no. that's like that Carrie Underwood song. The, ne- the, the next time he cheats, it won't be on her. <laughs> <laughs> Damn straight. I was going for the, I was coming back from the grocery store, and that song came on the radio. I sang it. I had no idea. I knew all the words to that fucking song, but I do know all the words to that song. She went all in. I'm not even kind of I'm, I'm I'm not even honestly ashamed. Why should you be? I'm not even sure I remember the name of it, but I know all the words. Ah, before he cheats, yeah. I might have even danced in my seat a little bit as I was listening to this song. <laughs> I regret nothing. But Juice Newton wasn't actually particularly um inspiring. I ended up switching my playlist to um. A George Strait playlist, and that worked out a lot better for me, actually. I don't know how you could not find Juice Newton inspiring, though. <laughs> Angel of the Morning is beautiful. Although it doesn't inspire Marines come Cowboys fucking in Texas. It doesn't no, not really. It doesn't particularly evoke that mood. No. No. <laughs> I'm not sure what not does really. evoke that, but maybe that This Could Take All Night song by What's Her Name? Amanda something. That definitely evokes fucking anywhere. But once I had my idea, I was like, I had to go look up Mama Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys because reasons. That's so cliche. I know. You're you're going for a cowboy cowboy story and you went to Mama Don't Let Your Baby Grow Up to Be Cowboys? Yep, I sure did. <sighs> At least you didn't go with all my exes live in Texas. That's actually on my 
Dude, shut George up. Strait Stop it. I mean, what? How could you have a George Strait playlist and not have all my exes live in Texas on it? Does it have the questions? Does it have I hate everything on it? Because if it doesn't have I hate everything on it, I'm going to be just judging you harshly. It has everything on it. It, it. I put everything on it. It's like my George Strait playlist has every single song from every single album he's ever put out on it. Well, there you go. Um, what is her name? I would find that very inspiring for writing in a meet, greet, fuck, happily ever after song. Yeah. Sorry. What they already met, though. It's like, you know, um, Amanda Marshall. I'm going to lean into that friends to lovers thing. Although, Take It Like a Man also has appeal. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's on the nose, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Look at her hair. That's good hair. I like I like that curl curly you know with abandoned hair. I mean if it if it wasn't so terrible, I would actually name the story Take It Like a Man. But <laughs> I, th I, th I think that actually could be like some kind of ism though. Take it like a man. I don't know what kind of ism it is. <laughs> It just seems offensive, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't evoke good things, that's for sure. Although it sure does sound porny. <laughs> this could take all night, though. That works. <laughs> Maybe I'll name that for a Christmas song. A Christmas song? <sighs> as long as it's not away in a manger, I guess we'll just deal. She's about to say something horrifying. I just, <laughs> I just have a, I feel, I feel it coming. I feel the horror coming. Uh, well, silver bells. <laughs> are they silver? How old are these guys? <laughs> just how long has he been an ex-marine? Quite a while. Former. Then little little drummer boy could really evoke the wrong mood. <laughs> Oh, home for Christmas. <laughs> Holly jolly Christmas. <laughs> Anyways, if nobody else has any questions, I believe um, we've probably exhausted the topic. Um, um, just uh, if you don't have any more questions, let, let me know. If there are any more questions, we'll tell Chad to fuck off. Chad, go get a beer. You've deser you deserve it. <laughs> let it snow okay well um thank you guys for joining us i hope it was entertaining and informative and i hope you have a good evening and we will see you tomorrow um my husband's off tomorrow uh oh i, I, that means, that I can't guarantee what kind of mood i would rather not name i will talk about that after i end the podcast um <clears throat> uh it's not gonna be a productive day for her <laughs> Yeah, so if there's no telling what kind of mood I'll be in tomorrow evening. So just beware, bitches. Beware. Uh, say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone.